ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode number 43 of the Yorkshire Gamer Elite Big War Games podcast. And today's guest is Paul Thompson from Early War Miniatures. And we'll be popping over to the interview section very soon to speak to Paul about the company and lots of other things. Uh, but before we do so, a few announcements, a little bit of housekeeping like we always do. And um, just following the last episode, 42. A couple of days after that came out, the podcast reached 75,000 downloads in the various formats that uh, it's released. So, yes, that's 75,000. And to be honest, 74,000 are not my mum. Uh, but uh, thank you very much, everyone who listens to the podcast. That's uh, quite an amazing number to reach, and I never expected to have that many uh, regular listeners. Um, a couple of the podcasts are now approaching 3,000 downloads individually, uh, which is absolutely amazing. So thank you, everyone out there who does listen. And if you know anyone who might be interested, then uh, let them know, uh, let them uh, have a listen at the end of the day it's uh, free and uh, if you do get a chance to give us a follow or a like or a comment or a review wherever you listen to uh, so that the profile goes up so more people listen that would be absolutely lovely just for the benefit of uh, newer listeners um, and a lot of people have come on board uh, this year um, just so you're aware there are two different versions of the podcast they're the same episode but the episode comes out in an audio only format on uh, it's released on podbean but you can get it on any major podcast host and that's just uh, the audio version and that comes out first uh, because that's the format that I pay to have my podcast hosted so that's the one that uh, that gets the preference so you don't pay at the end of the day it's all free and then um i then put out a second edition or version uh, again same audio but uh, with a video run through of some photographs related to my guest and that's put out on the yorkshire gamer youtube channel and that usually comes out the day of or uh, close to the next audio podcast so it's kind of one podcast before behind if you're watching this on youtube so uh the last episode with george nafziger the episode 42 very well received and uh, i think i managed to rescue it from uh, the nightmare that we had recording it uh, and uh, it, it's edited together really well so i'm very happy with that and it was great to talk to George and uh, hopefully one day soon I'll get across the states and meet him in person and uh, in other news as my good mate Sean Clark has uh, come back with his podcast God's Own Scale and uh, he had a brilliant uh, guest lined up for his uh, first episode back in episode 51 uh, but sadly they weren't available so he had me on instead and <laughs> me and Sean had a good chat for a couple of hours uh, about all things wargaming and it's great to see him back on the air and uh, he will have a great lineup of guests coming forward over the the next weeks and months i hope and it uh, adds another wargaming related podcast to the list that uh, you hopefully already listened to so well done sean great to see you back mate uh really good to be on the show as well as a guest so thanks for that 
So, on to today. Uh, we're talking to Paul Thompson. Paul is a great guy, really, uh, really fun chap to talk to, and he's got loads and loads of stories. So, uh, you may have noticed already that this is quite a lengthy episode, and uh, I really enjoyed talking to Paul. It was uh, so much fun, and um, we covered all sorts of stuff, uh, obviously relating to his uh, to his business. Um, but there's a fantastic story about a investigation into a German raid on the Isle of Wight in 1943, uh, which is well worth a listen, as as long uh, as well as many, many other stories. So uh, I know you're going to enjoy it. There's a little bit of mic interference at uh, Paul's end. Uh, he had some people working um, nearby, and uh, later on in the episode, we're joined by what's sounds like a flock of birds uh, so if you if you do hear cheat tweeting in the background you're not going mad it is on the recording uh, but i'm sure it won't spoil uh, the listen so sit back get this in a cup of tea uh some donuts or a bit of cheese and cheese and biscuits whatever you like to eat and without further ado here's an interview Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen, once again to the interview section of the Yorkshire Gamer podcast. And having run out of steam on the way back from America for the last episode, the Yorkshire Airlines Pigeon has stopped for a rest on the South Island of England for today's guest. And as always, there's loads to cover. He started a company in 2010, making a range of models and figures for the War Games hobby. And the company has gone from its early six foot trade space to a huge walking area with free ginger biscuits. Specialising in 20mm with items covering the world wars and in between, the company's well known for its quality and its coverage of lesser known theatres and participants. So if you desperately need some World War II Danish infantry on Nimbus motorcycle and sidecar combinations, or that selection of infantry from the Royal Army of Siam from 1930, this is your guide. Always a happy face to see at a show. My guest is here to talk about himself as well as the company Early War Miniatures. So let's give a really big warm welcome to the latest guest on the show. Hello, Paul Thompson. Hello, Ken. Well, that's a wonderful introduction. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, you've obviously done your homework. Uh, yes. And uh, Ginger Nuts, always always welcoming with my Ginger Nuts at shows. Oh, it's a, it's a sight to see everywhere you go, mate. Oh, I, I like a, I like a little bit of uh, eccentricity on the show, so that's a, a perfect perfect thing. Better than just a bland stand, I have to say. I have to say. So there's 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 lots to talk about, mate. But have uh, have you ever been a podcast guest before? No, never. Uh, this is my my first one, so I'm a podcast virgin. Oh well, you do listen to the show, though, don't you, mate? Yes, very much so. And it was that eccentricity that you talked about in your podcast that really got Andy and I attracted to uh, listening. Um, so uh, <laughs> when we're beavering away in the, in, the, in the lower workshop, we often have podcasts and other uh, game-related media playing in the background. And uh, Yorkshire Game has been a firm favourite. Brilliant. That's lovely to hear, mate. That's lovely to hear. Well, before you get settled in, um, we have a thing called the four minute challenge. Um, and that's just an opportunity to you to try and uh, summarize 
uh, your wargaming history in four minutes or less. Um, and uh, we'll go into lots of detail about some of the things that you cover in the four minutes, but it's just a little bit of a, an icebreaker and a chance to get you to uh, to get loosened up. So uh, are you, have you done a bit of prep? I did. I've made some extensive notes and I shall, I shall look at them and try and um, read from them um, as we go through. No worries, mate. Well, your four minutes starts now. Well, as a young kid uh, from the early 60s, I was fed on a very firm diet of Airfix models, Victor comics, a host of war films from the late 60s and early 70s, uh, the wonderful Spike Milligan and his wartime memoir books, the award-winning uh, World at War series, and my father being a veteran of the British Expeditionary Force from 1940, that and spending many summer and weekends at mum and dad's caravan down in Shubriness, just where the artillery ranges were. So to hear the uh, boom of artillery uh, during those visits down there um, and seeing the Shuby garrison where I saw my first tank and tanks is a whole different story. So with that as a background, it was really bound to happen. Um, so as a kid of the 70s, uh, I'd travel down to London, the Imperial, Imperial War Museum, for example, where they had a, just the most magnificent first war uh, display of tanks attacking trenches where you could look along the line of the trenches. For those who remember the museum back in the 70s, it was just behind where the old Matilda II used to be. Mm. And that really seeing miniatures in that setting uh, bought it for me. Totally inspiring stuff, uh, both then and now. Uh, when at school, the discovery of books such as uh, Tank Battles in Miniature, um, all those lovely pictures of 20mm models and uh, armour penetration tables, my oh, first time yes. ever seeing such things. Oh, I got, I, got, I got quite moist at the thought of all that, <laughs> I tell you. And, um, uh, and visits to the local library where books by Featherstone and others, it was a whole new world. I, I, I just can't tell you, really. Um, my paper round money went to purchase um, Peter Lang figures. For the first time, I bought some mm -hmm. metal figures. Um, and also it paid for the um, the weekly Orbis World War II magazines that used to come out. So really a complete uh, addiction, really, in that way. Uh, it was really kind of in my uh, mid-teens, I started to design my own kind of primitive figures, really, to address a growing need that I clearly had and realise now is the need to create something in miniature. Uh, it was a, a very dodgy Mulburian range, um, but the main reason for doing it back then was because, well, no one made them, and if you wanted such things back in those days, you had to make them or do conversions. Mm. And a firm memory in there is mum telling me off for making a real mess in her kitchen with practicing how to do home casting. Uh, yeah. She was very, uh, very good at letting me uh, indul indulge me in that. I joined a war games club, um, MP war games group, which again exposes you to more games, more people, uh, new rule sets, for example. Mm. I went to my first gaming convention, which I think was in Hastings. It was a whole weekend. It was really laid back great time really enjoyed it really relaxed really big wargaming tables first time ever seeing those you know i still remember them to this day and also saw my first reenactments then as well so late teens saw me getting into motorcycles and 15 mil ancients very popular at the time sixth edition and wrg that is not the motorcycles <laughs> uh in 1986 uh, led to my one and only uh, competition participation where I met some really great people. I met some bloody awful people as well, I tell you. Um, it was the 15 mil Ancients Nationals Championship, oh. which was, uh, yeah, I remember uh, Jed, wonderful Jed, who ran started Chariot Miniatures, um, uh, used to organise mm. that. Um, I, I actually won it uh, by, I don't know how, but anyway, the, the short-ass git from seven of the warlords who lost in the final, he kept coming to my club and demanding a rematch. It was, it was 
really not the sort of person I wanted to wargame with. So I got a very harsh lesson early on there. Yeah. Anyway, uh, building models of remote console submarines at 172nd and 132 scale. Uh, desire to build a working model submarine that fired torpedoes um, with escorts that dropped depth charges. Oh, yeah, that was me, I'm afraid. And I terrorized many a local boat in Lake Torpedoing, no bang at the end of it, of course, and proudly displaying the tonnage peasants, mm. uh, penance at the end. So the film Das Boat has a lot to answer for. Um, got into all the Roses reenactment uh, with the White Company in the early 80s, where I got to meet and make lifelong friends, Alan and Michael Perry being just two of them. They only lived a short way from me, so when I was an apprentice, I'd pop in at lunchtime where Mrs. Perry would always welcome me with a cup of tea and we'd sit and chat and look at all their big, wonderful new models they were creating. Very happy days. Um, always a keen attendee at Wargame shows. Did quite a few display games actually in the past as well, including Salute and Tunbridge Wells, you know, a Cavalier show. Periods of interest, really, uh, Marlborough, Napoleonics, uh, early World War II. World War II in some form has always been there and the desire to do World War One. However, in the last 15 years, the period focus has really been early World War II, interwar and World War One, submarine warfare and tanks. I did say I like love tanks. Mm. Anyway, we'll talk about that more, I'm sure. And uh, I saw my first tank at Shoebury with my father in 1970. I've been smitten ever since. Nice. And at one point, um, Alan, Michael and myself owned a Stuart Light tank, which we uh, did some interesting stuff with. And we still own a 1944 Bren carrier, which we've driven all the way from Belgium to Arnhem twice now. Uh, the uh, 60th and 70th anniversaries. Uh, 2010, I took ownership of Tom's Tins range, which I renamed to Early War Miniatures, and we launched that in 2011. So I love all unusual subjects. Um, I think you know that uh, period like World War II, there's so much a game has missed, things like Syria, Libya, mm. um, Iraq, Thailand campaigns, you know, just wargaming gold, boys' own adventure stuff, all on the tabletop. So that's really been my um, my passion and what's been behind. I mean, where else would you get British cavalry emerging from the desert to uh, to fight uh, Vichy French in the Roman ruins of Palmyra in World War II? Exactly. It's just <laughs> fantastic. Uh, moving quickly on, board gaming uh, with miniatures has featured a lot in my uh, recent years, expanding and blowing these up. Uh, lovely, glorious maps, but actually making them bigger and using miniatures. Chain of Command is certainly my favourite command, uh, favourite wall set, which we play a lot here. And uh, there's a very positive anticipation right now for the wanting to play Water Cowboy, oh, yeah. uh, which I got my copy a couple of weeks ago. Uh, thank you, Mr. Clark. And uh, I plan to use some of my own miniatures, i.e. the late um, Mexicans in the uh, 1890s Mexican border region with Americans. Uh, and lastly, but not least, this time of year, April onwards, sees a growing fascination with an interest in the Falklands, uh, a war that actually I lived through. And so it's interesting to compare what the memory of back then tells us to what actually is coming out with all the new facts and published books that are coming out to this day so there you go it was well over four minutes but I, you were doing so well i just let you go oh you're very <laughs> kind thank you i was listening out for the ding i was listening for di regan yeah say, well it. i've got i've got a new uh, i've got a new microphone set up but unfortunately that doesn't come through anymore um so ah. but no uh, lovely thank you very much for that thank you very much for that and you mentioned something there at the very start of, of your little chat there that we've that and um, we've not talked about before, and I'm surprised now that you've mentioned it. And that was the Spike Milligan books. Um, mm. Adolf Hitler, My Part and His Downfall. Um, I'm trying to remember yep. the other titles now. Oh, yeah. Uh, Rommel, uh, Gunner yes. uh, Mussolini, uh, oh, and, and the post-war ones as well, of course. Uh, you know, he, he wrote seven in the series. He was a, so, uh, uh, he was a very interesting man with Spike Milligan. Ex extremely funny yeah. and extremely 
kind of out there as well, really. He he was um, had a, a very different sense of humour. So, so do you remember when first picking those books up? Whereabouts did you get them from? I do, yes. Um, so I can't quite remember how I got hold of it, but certainly um, family and friends knew of my interest in um, in the subjects of uh, the World Wars. And um, I think it's because I was always addicted to watching the Q series whenever yes, it came yes, on television. Yeah. And so, um, it, which was just phenomenally funny. And um, I think it was Mother who bought me uh, a paperback copy of uh, Rommel Gunner Who. Yeah. And of course, um, in there were just some of the best. He'd convert pictures, his Hitlergrams, <laughs> which were just in the style of Q series comedy, um, you know, berating the Nazi regime from, the, from every possible point, just still makes me laugh to this day. Um, so I've been a firm fan of Spike from early days. I actually had the pleasure of getting to see him in a little concert he did when he was still able. Oh, right. Amazing. Uh, when he was, I was. It would just do a little um, uh, a mixture of you know, playing a bit of music, singing a few songs, telling some jokes, and, and, and just sitting there talking to the audience. It was just fantastic. Wow. And in one of my proud parts of my collections, I have his... This, the whole series of books on tape, um, still in shrink wrap, which he signed, oh, not in front yeah. of me. I purchased it signed. So I, I love Spike. I just think his comedy and his memoirs of World War Two are just great reading and great listening. Still listen to him. I heard them hundreds of times, but I listen to him still. Yeah, he's um, he um, was able to bring across um, the humour that is in. Um, military circles because i mean at the end of the day it's a it's a it's a horrible job and you will see and have uh -huh. to do horrible things but everyone i've met who has ever had anything to do with the military has always had a pretty amazing sense of humor and, and those books kind of brought that across and made you realize that the guys out there doing that job um did have a good time sometimes and it was a, it's a lovely yeah. to read. I'm glad you brought those up because I'd, I'd, I'd forgotten about them. I honestly had. And um, you brought back some lovely memories there. So thank you very much for that. That's, oh, good. Uh, that's amazing. Um, and, and you mentioned as well that um, your dad was involved in the Second World War. So tell us what, uh, what he was involved with. Well, uh, he was a uh, called back to the colours in 1939. He was a regular soldier in the early 30s um 34 i think to 37 um, i've got a lovely picture of him uh, at machine gun school clowning around with his mates and uh yeah called back to the colors um just before the start of world war ii and um went to france in january 1940 um basically the um territorial battalion which was made up from the reserves mm -hmm. and the territorials so uh first battalion ox and bucks and um was involved in those early May and uh, May battles with the Germans. He, uh, I was very lucky actually to come across the battalion diaries, and there's a lovely little story behind it yeah. which I'll share with yeah, you if you're interested. So yeah, I, I was very keen to to try and discover more, and there are some good books on the subject, but they normally cover many other parts as well. So I was aware of the battalion diaries, and I thought I'll keep a lookout mm. for them. And um, before I was trading, I was on the other side of the counter, a regular attendee at Colours, for example. I'd been around the show, enjoyed it very much, was waiting for a buddy whilst he was doing his ablutions before we left. And I turned around and there was a bookshop stall. And on the end of the books was winking at me this green title. Ooh. 
I thought, I should kind of look at that. I don't think I looked at that book still properly, being a real book fan. And I picked it out, and it was the Battalion Diaries, um, featuring the 1st Battalion um, from 1939, ending in June 1940. And in that, it described their entire um, path, where they were, what battles they were involved in. And, of course, it talks a lot about the biggest battle that the BEF fought the Germans in 1940 that you don't often see referred to mm. or even mentioned. And that's the battle at Comines, the Comines Canal, which is on the Belgium and French uh, border, where uh, effectively by them holding up for three days, it stopped the Germans closing the Dunkirk pocket prematurely. Um, so long story short, I ended up going over there, having a trip and a visit, found this oh, battlefield. No. Um, the main, yeah, the main reference point is the lovely old light railway line, which is still there. It's a push bike uh, route mm. now, but it, it's, it's in bank, so you can clearly see it. And standing on there and in this feature, there's a wonderful farmhouse, which is uh, set within a, a re-entrant, which is a kind of dip in the ground, which is very well described by the uh, Padre who wrote the diaries. I thought, I'll just go and have a look at that house up this long, windy path, you know, in the open. And uh, as you get closer, you see kind of spang marks, you know, bullet impacts all around the top windows. And I thought, well, I'll knock on the door. What, what's the harm? Knocked on the door, met two of the most wonderful people who happened to speak brilliant English. And uh, they happen to also be his local history interpreters for the area. So when I mentioned that this was my oh, father's battlefield, fantastic, and uh, I could see the yeah, see all the information uh, or see sorry signs of it in their house, which they'd restored. Um, we invited in. I went back for dinner the following night, where I got to meet two farmers who were young boys at the time, who were both ten and eleven, and they came to dinner, and uh, the the wonderful Belgian family translated their conversation wow, for me amazing uh, i get quite emotional yeah. thinking about it because they talked about not my father clearly but they talked about the tommies the soldiers who turned up to um try and save them from the germans and the big three-day battle that took place there and uh they described um a group of soldiers who turned up he said they're all big tall men big big tall fellas and as soon as they arrived in our farm they all slumped to the ground and were so tired but this, of course, was the uh, guards who were coming up. Um, they'd marched 30 miles to get to this battle to try and push the Germans back who were making um, some inroads in this area. And uh, so they described things that you would never mm. read in books for certain. And uh, being actually in the farmhouse, having dinner with the two gentlemen who were boys at the time, it was their farmhouse at the time, really brought me back closer to you know what it was my father was involved in here. You know, three days standing. Um, they, they were the very end battalion of the end of the brigade at the yeah. end of the line, exactly where the German Schwerpunkt, the point of main effort, was directed. So uh, now he was wounded in that operation and was a prisoner of war for five years. So um, uh, something he never really talked that much about, but occasionally on good days he would talk about things. And uh, one thing he talked about was firing a Vickers machine gun, which you probably see over my shoulder. Guarding actually. the coast. Yeah, guarding the coast, exactly. And I remember him describing to me how you would, you know, you'd kind of hold both the ends and you'd squeeze the, uh, the press the plunger in the middle with your thumbs and then just tap, plunge, tap, which is a way of kind of spreading the fire. And so, uh, yeah, I've got a lot of Vickers up here in the man cave at the moment, which is just a little memory of something that uh, my yeah, father well, that's, would use. That's an absolutely, yeah, uh, a fantastic story and a fantastic that you've been able to connect so 
well with um that period of, of history as well you know it's ama it always amazes me when yeah. you, you go back and visit battlefields in europe that you do find these people um who have memories or have memories of their parents or grandparents time during the war and i i remember mm -hmm. myself going um hunting out some battles on the normandy campaign and, and we were similar to you chatting with a farmer and um and he, his english was very good and he said oh i'll come i show you show you this and he was showing me this wall and i'm looking at it and i'm going i can't see anything really but then he showed me um he said look look closely and you could just see where the wall had been rebuilt um and there was like a, a, a oh. like a a concertina gap down either side and it, that was where a sherman tank had driven through the wall um and then he went on to tell the story of how not of anything war related but of how his dad was so angry with the driver because he knocked his wall down <laughs> and in the middle of the war he was berating the yeah. tank driver to fix the wall for him <laughs> it it is amazing um it's truly amazing i i mentioned that alan and michael we, we drove a carrier uh, with some other mates uh, in 2004 we did a trip all the way from the Belgian border right the way up uh, ending up at Arnhem for the celebrations there and I cannot tell you how wonderful you'd go we we timed various little celebrations and meetings along the route and we turn up and we were dressed as proper scruffy old Tommies we weren't very dedicated reenactors well, I certainly wasn't but um, I, we looked the right scruff and uh, and the Dutch people would come up and say, thank you for what yeah. your fathers did. In all sincerity, you know, some mm. of them with tears in their eyes. Um, when we drove uh, the carrier up, um, the children who would, uh, obviously the parades, there's lots of parades you take part in, which is fantastic. And the children asked if they could chalk words of uh, hope and um, other, other um, salutations yeah. on the carrier. Um, because that's what the children right, did in right. 1944. Yeah. And so we had a load of school kids writing on them with a big arrow <laughs> pointing, obviously, the right direction. And and good luck, Tommy, you know, in, yeah. in a kind of a Dutch accent, scribbled on the side of the carrier as we as we drove it. And a lot of other vehicle owners would um, drop sweets and stuff. But we had handfuls of old discharged 303 bullets. So we chucked them out to the kids and they'd fight over them. It's like, wow, fuck <laughs> the sweets. I want them bullets. <laughs> so, oh, that's absolutely, yeah. absolutely fantastic. Happy days. Absolutely fantastic. You mentioned some magazines as well. What um, what magazines did you read when you were growing up? So the Orbis publications. Um, Orbis is the, uh, well, the publicist, but they were a weekly publication um, detailing aspects of World War Two. They went right through the whole um, period and, and went into some post-war stuff. I actually stopped buying them at that point. So issue number 110, I think, well, I've had enough now. Uh, you know, I don't want to know about the um, uh, the wars in Africa at this stage. I wasn't that interested in terms of you know post-war. Um, but no, that you know at, at the time, I think it was over well one a week. So you can imagine, you know, over a, over a year, maybe two years, they they spread them. And of course, my um, my hard-earned pocket money went a paper round money went to uh, buying such things. And then you would sit and, uh, and look over them. And of course, those maps, those wonderful maps of like Northern Europe, with those big red fingers, a bit like on Dad's army pointing, you know, of uh, the German advance and you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, just, yeah, brilliant. Did you ever get into the like the commando and battle comics and that sort of thing? 
didn't I, I did read the Kamano, but it was the Victor comic for me. Victor comic, um, yeah, that was the other yeah, one. I was trying to think of the yeah. other one. Mum and Dad bought me the Victor comic that needs to come, and uh, yes, that was always a firm favourite. Absolutely superb, and and you know ties in with Spike Milligan really. Where you you've got the comedy pictures in the Victor comic of you know the German saying uh, Ah Tommy and Hand Hocken, and of course that's what Milligan Spike has drawn on some of his uh, pictures in the books. So it, I, it totally resonated with me. Yeah, uh, brilliant, brilliant memories. Um, so getting started with the war gaming, then do you remember what that first um, sort of thing was that got you playing soldiers? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, as a child being bo bought boxes of airfix figures, um, so we, we never had fireworks. My brother was a bit of a demon. So <laughs> mum and dad would buy me a box or a couple of boxes of airfix figures as compensation mm. for not having lots of fireworks, which suited me because, you know, it was all reinforcements for the uh, the campaigns that I would design around the house. So, you know, for example, the um, various rooms would become areas so that the vast sways of Russia would be uh, basically the landing room carpet. Um, <laughs> the island chain in the Pacific would be the various stairs all the way down. Um, and so as a, a child, I'd plan in great detail these uh, campaigns, unpainted figures at the time, mm. um, and uh, fight these, these battles in the mind uh, with all these lovely figures. And then, of course, as summer uh, came, we would consider invading invasion of uh, various flower beds in mum and dad's garden <laughs> um and with you know of course that way you could use the uh, wonderful epic ships on the grass because yeah. the, the the whole line was kind of hidden a little bit as he sat on the grass so we're talking you know age of eight nine maybe ten getting mm. into eleven and then um really discovering drawing maps and making my own counters you know we mentioned board games a little bit there so board games always played a part in my gaming and then to discover that actually I'm not the only one who did this. Yeah. Who actually sat at home drawing maps. <laughs> uh, it was a bit like discovering this book at school with all these wonderful armor tables and you know the tank battles and miniatures. Like, oh my God, someone else, someone else does this with things with with models. And so you gradually widen the circle of people you talk to about it, and then you find others who play, and that really just opened up the floodgates to me. Mm, yeah, fantastic. And do you remember the first kind of proper rules that you used well i think it was um because photocopying wasn't as easy to come by back in the yeah. early 70s so um i managed to purloin the uh, this copy that this kid had got of the tank battles of miniature uh at the afternoon at lunchtime and said i'll give it back to you at the end of school and so throughout every class that afternoon i just hand wrote all the tables oh, on my notepad fantastic. didn't listen to the maths or the geography and the other things i was like no these tables and yeah these other rules and and that then obviously became the basis. I went home and managed to then find a copy in the library, lovely local library that we used to have, and um, was forever being fined for not returning my book. Because, uh, yeah, I'm a very slow reader, Ken. I, I'm sort of back, back when I was at school in the 70s, you were just called thick. Now you've, it's got dyslexia and all the various other ologies to go with it. Yeah. But uh, you know, back, back in the 70s, I was a bit considered thick, um, but just a slow reader. And so, um, yeah, those books, again, were just eye-opening. Yeah, and and I've got to I've got to say I love an armor penetration table. I love a bit of detail in my rules. It it's yeah. been it's been washed away by all these other people, but I'm out there saying detail in your game, detail in your game. Yeah, 
there's almost a bit of nostalgia to actually, you know, want to, I've still got, I managed to get copies of those books over the various years, as you can yeah. imagine. And occasionally there you come out and thumb through them and think, oh, look at that. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> uh, ooh, rubbing of the knees vigorously. Um, so there's still, there's still a nostalgia attached, but um, yeah, I didn't think I'd probably use them now for gaming. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, we, st we still, we still harp to them a little bit. Uh, and and yeah. use them a little bit in our rules, and um, I do is I do still enjoy it. But I'm an engineer, so uh, that's that's where I come from. And I, and as I've said on other shows, I, if I've spent four hours painting it, building and painting a tank, I don't want someone to destroy it with a one d six roll. I want I, I want no. a bit of work. I want I want you to sweat to destroy my tank. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And you know, at least if you put a hole in it, you may not knock it out. You may just knock it out partly. Yeah. Um, so I do like rules that actually one vehicle isn't just completely killed. You can knock it back, reduce its fighting capability, etc. Yeah. Bit um, of detail. Yeah. Bit of detail. Lovely. Yeah. That's what we like to see. So have you got a have you got a setup at home for gaming? Well, I have now. So um the studio I'm sitting in, Man Cave Studio. Um, studio for tax reasons, man cave for yeah. other things. <laughs> so I claimed all the building costs on the uh, on my with my accountant. Don't blame you. Um, so yeah, um, I built it. Um, I've, I've lived on the island now for three and a half, coming up four years, and uh, it was the last big build on the list really. Um, and anyone who's been to this part of the island, it's not very not very many flat places. So I had to build a platform onto which to build it. Um, so it's 27 square meters. Oh, wow. Um, so within permitted development mm. for building, um, yeah, by four doors all the way along the front. I think you've seen mm, the view out amazing. the front there. Absolutely amazing. Um, across the channel, we, we get some great visitors quite often. The Navy will come past and, um, uh, wave at us. And we've had two already today, two Spitfires fly past. Fantastic. Um, so during the nice weather, we always get Spitfires coming past, um, so uh, gaming really isn't here, although I also I do use it for work as well. So, uh, for example, all my photography that I do uh, is done up here. More and more now we're starting to use the figures in games and actually take pictures of those games and start to use oh, those brilliant. more. That was always the goal, always the goal. Um, and I, I'd had a games room before um, this one. And so when I built this one, what went inside it, was done with a lot more consideration. So for example, Alan and Michael have got just the most splendid mm. wargaming rooms you can yeah. imagine. And um, and I asked them, what, what would they change if they had the chance? You know, what, what things would they change now? Because as you build them, you tend to use what's available or you buy shelves specially. And one thing was really, well, put something in place, but live with it for a month or so. See if you like it there. Don't go fixing it to all at that mm. point. And, uh, one thing I also did, and I'll, I'll point the camera at it so you can see what I'm talking about. Can you see the architecture? Oh, yes, drawers? yeah, all the old plan drawers. So that's it. Yeah, so there's a big set of architect's drawers. Now, they're mounted on a platform, which is on wheels. And above that is uh, an eight-foot by four-foot table space, which can unfold mm. and double. Yeah. The plan drawers are all there because uh, within those, um, there are preset games, board oh, games. Brilliant. They, they're already yeah. set up. So all you do is you pull the drawer out, put it on top of the table, play your turns, put it Fantastic. back again. And all all around the edges are shelving where all the lovely terrain, trees, woods, um, you know, mats that I've painted and sprayed uh, are all displayed. So when you've 
it's lovely to have that terrain out on the table when you're playing with it but actually when you're just want a bit of inspiration just glance across and actually you can see it all on display yeah. still not in the context of a table but it's all there ready to come off the shelf and be used so after a lot of consideration um of where things were i, I put them in place live with them for a bit and then um, fix them to the wall i'm still work in progress there's still a, a little area that needs um uh, fixing and painting i mean behind me you can see the illuminated glass yeah. shelves um for um terrain and uh models uh and various other bits and pieces and uh board games so um or their books actually <laughs> but uh so see moving the camera um there we go so there's board games and again being a board game collector i always love looking at the artwork it's a bit like the boxes of uh, figures and games that you that you buy so rather than have them end on i'd rather have them with the pretty side out um so he's like oh i fancy a game of access and allies today oh yeah. there it is he's winking at me let's go and play it so oh, yeah fantastic and you mentioned um being part of the enfield club um earlier on um what was you have you got a club is there a is there a gaming scene on the isle of wight is, is there a club there or well there is there's a, a a quite an active little club in sandown but unfortunately they're mainly into blood bowl and uh, non-historical right. gaming um so there are, there are a couple of guys in there who do play historical games but uh we've been down there a couple of times and uh, to take a board game uh historical game but it's now i've got this up here um plus there's a bar next door it's it kind of like do we really want to drive down there do you know what let's go up yeah. top let's go up to the uh, up to the man cave have a beer and um yeah um so uh, there are other gamers there's another manufacturer on the island as well um so uh, he's been here for a couple of games as well in the past so now i've really started to get the studio how i want it the idea is to play more games up yeah. here um, but the first three and a half years of moving the business and rebuilding a home took priority so um yeah now time so to this, enjoy this it. this podcast goes out worldwide um and uh, so mm. just to explain to people who might not be that familiar um the isle of wight where is it what big how big is it etc just so people get an idea okay well the isle of wight is uh, the very southern part of england um so if you find southampton it's kind of just below that southampton and portsmouth i believe it's 17 miles across by 15 miles deep it's a bit like a diamond mm. shape so if you uh put your finger and thumbs together and create a diamond in front of you your right hand thumbnail will be exactly probably where we are so we're right down in the bottom right hand corner um and although i've been here a few times on holidays um you know moving here was was quite a big thing so i didn't know anybody i haven't got any family or anything here but it really is just the most amazing part of the british isles it's an area called the undercliff so the undercliff is is a especially europe's oldest landslip so um that part of the island ten thousand years ago went <laughs> fell down mm. so behind me there is a sheer rock face um at its highest point it's about 600 feet high at the lowest point uh at the one end of the undercliff it's you know a couple of hundred feet high um and then this piece of landslip below it mile wide by about seven eight miles long um it gets the sun all day from the very start of the day to the very end of the day it's protected from most of the prevailing winds that come around the, the point of um the isle of wight so 
it has a microclimate, which I didn't realize till I moved here. So effectively, it's five degrees or more warmer in the winter all year wow. round. And in the summer, it's never super hot because we've got constant onshore breeze mm. from the cooling ocean. Um, so again, in England, my neighbors grow bananas outside in the garden. My new dogs chasing all the lizards. There's been lizards <laughs> everywhere. It's, like, it's not, it's, it's a bit, and some of the plants that grow here are like something out of Avatar. Yeah. I had no idea what they're called or what they do. Yeah. Some of them prick you, some don't. Um, you have to find out really because I've just never seen them before growing up as a kid in England. So this wonderful little place called the Undercliff, um, when we came here, what struck me was the light, the quality of light for work. And it's no surprise that many artists actually made their time working here because the quality of the light, A, you get the sun all day, but because it's kind of down on the ocean, then back up again, mm. the reflective light, it's, it's hard to describe unless you actually ever come here. Um, it's a wonderful part of this world. So happy to have discovered it. Um, everyone in Venter is so laid back. It's a bit like the Caribbean, really. You know, lunchtime, well, yeah, maybe a couple of hours that we'll get there. Yeah. It's really, really laid back. Um, and everyone, for the most part, is just so friendly. Absolutely fantastic. Um, now, in your, we always talk about favorite periods and scales and rules and stuff, and you, you did cover that in uh, the first bit, and we'll talk about it um, when we talk about early war miniatures as well. But you did mention something um, that we, we've got to go back to, and that's big ships and torpedoes and depth charges. So, <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> well, um, okay, so. Uh, People of a certain age will may well remember, I think it was Benton and Hedges, that advert where the chap's sitting there with smoking his pipe in the park and these horrible little kids are running their race boat around on the park, chasing the yeah. ducks. And he very kindly leans down under and picks up his remote control unit while smoking his whatever it was. <laughs> and then the submarine comes to life and torpedoes this boat. <laughs> yes, remember I it? do, yeah. Okay, well, I saw that and thought, I want to do that. And um, uh, you know, being an apprentice in training technonics and engineer myself, I um, discovered the world of remote control boats and submarines that actually dive remote control. I said 172nd scale and 132nd scale. So my Type 7 German U-boat, which I started with, was just over six wow. foot long. So it's quite a sizable yeah. model. Um, and uh, I thought, I've got to make this fire a torpedo. It's just got to be done. <laughs> and so um, doing various things that you do and you're driven in such a way uh, i made it fire torpedoes and consequently um i mean these torpedoes were electric they would just run there was a little uh, on off button in the nose which would be the contact point which obviously once it hit something it would stop and then come to rest and sit like a fishing float just yeah. above the water um and uh yeah a number of times i'd kind of been hot pursuit at submerged with my periscope just showing or just below um and then creep up on other people's boats, <laughs> especially sailing boats, because they're great. Because when they turn into the wind, they storm yeah. mostly. Yeah. And uh, I only had a single forward firing and a single rear firing at that time, torpedo. And uh, yeah, that was a fair game for me. It's a bit like wargaming, really, on your local boat, boating lake. And most people were, they saw the funny side of it. I thought, oh, I never thought I'd see that. And they all talked about that advert, you know, are you that bloke with the, who smokes his cigar and blew them kids up? <laughs> no. Um, and of course, such things were when uh, in conversation with Alan and Michael, who are also are sort of a bit pyromaniacs, a bit like me yeah. in some way, in a, in a very small controlled way. Uh, and we would do do such things. And then I, of course, had to create 
uh, a torpedo that would explode. Yes, in of course. So by using um, a magician's flash powder, basically, you won't go to the details of making it. You can make a really nice big flump uh, when it made contact. And so rather than switching the motor off when the, the torpedo head, head hit the model boat, it would actually switch the charge and, and set it off and create a nice big splash up the side of the boat. Oh, um, so absolutely fantastic. And that was that was only ever done for controlled displays, really. Yeah. Um, I did miss the target once and hit the side of this chap's swimming pool and took a tile off of his pool, <laughs> which wasn't very well received. Um, but then, of course, once you've got model submarines, you really, uh, and I was really into the Battle Atlantic and submarine warfare, both from the Allied and German perspective, mm. um, you had to build an escort. So I built a wonderful escort boat, again, similar scale. It was about four and a half foot long, I think. And uh, that was made to have uh, a fire charge, uh, three pattern depth charges, two off the side, one rolled off the back. Um, just a little bit of air. You could switch an air, air cylinder and actually just push them off the side. And, and of course, the cup that held them would fall away, a bit like the Mark 9 depth yeah. charge did. Yeah. And then by the careful use of certain chemicals, you could set it to go off quickly or slowly. Oh, wow. And um, the uh, detonation would be only the size of a, a tennis ball, I suppose. Um, but, of course, I didn't realize, having read on science, that explosions underwater are five times more effective than above the water. <laughs> and um, so it, it had a lovely effect. And uh, one of my great memories is uh, going to the Wembley, where, when the Modern Engineer exhibition was at Wembley and even at... Uh, uh, the other place in London, which I can't remember now, uh, and we would have a boating pool. And so being a, a keen member and very popular with the, the torpedoes and and then to drive the uh, Corvette, the pool is only about a foot and a half deep, so not very deep. And then, of course, fire these torpedo, these depth charges off over the top of a submarine that was sitting there waiting and then see the little puffs of water that would come up. Uh, absolutely fantastic. And Again, this this hobby is one of those things. Not not the more submarines, but just wargaming. It brings you into contact with people you would never normally meet in life. And a gentleman called Carl Varnig was one of those people. Carl Varnig was an electrician on U eight oh nine, German submarine. He uh, he spent his uh, he obviously surrendered at the end of the war. One of the lucky ones to survive was made prisoner of war. And he said uh, uh, he came from East Germany and didn't want to go back to East Germany. So he ended up opting to stay in England. And uh, he was a prisoner of war for two years. And he said, uh, if you ever walk around Hyde Park, all those trees around the edges, I, me and my mates planted those when we were prisoners wow. of war. And um, not only was he full of stories like that and many more, he would have a klaxon, an old, uh, like a Euro, Aurora, <laughs> type klaxon. <laughs> And I'd nod at him and he'd see the Corvette coming in over the target, sitting in the port. I'd nod at Carl and he'd, he'd wave. He'd be wearing his U-boat cap and he'd hit the klaxon, big <laughs> smile on his face, obviously bringing back old memories. And I'd drop these depth charges off the top, off the side and off the back of the uh, Corvette and we'd get the explosions. And most times the submarine would sur surface and everybody would clap and stuff. Yeah. One time I got it too good, I actually dropped one of these charges right on the upper deck of the uh, model submarine. And of course, once they're off and gone, you can't stop them. They're going to go pop and it went bang. And the submarine didn't come back up, so we had to wade into the pool and pick it up. It didn't didn't destroy it at all. But what it did was it shook all the terminals off the battery and just it just killed it. So um, yeah, we've got one confirmed sinking. There, I think. <laughs> well, I hope there's a little I hope there's a little submarine painted on the side of the escort, just with a red line it's through. Sadly it. gone, sadly gone to another Has home. Now. I, I I have managed to keep one of my model submarines. I'm kind of looking at it now. It's a 
a 130 second scale version of uh, a model of a U-class submarine, HMS Upholder. Uh-huh. Yep. For those who know the submarine history, Commander Wanklin's boat, first VC in a submarine, the Mediterranean campaign. And uh, that in its day was converted to four forward firing, bubble free ejection system torpedoes. Uh-huh. So you can imagine I'll cause uh-huh. havoc with that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is plenty of fun to be had with, with that for sure. Uh, that's an amazing story. Um, we always uh, we always like to finish uh, this first part of the of the show with the Venn diagram of wargaming, uh, and that's mm. just uh, a little bit of a a way of uh, sort of defining your wargaming personality, and that's breaking uh, things down into wargamer, painter, collector, and historian. And different people have different, um, you know, ways that they look at the hobby, and this kind of helps to d- describe how people do. So, where do you see yourself in that uh, collection, there, Paul? Oh, okay. Well, I, I, I firmly sit within the uh, historian and wargamer. Um, I do paint. Uh, I'm not as much time as I would like these days, um, um, but I, I do do paint many of the models I've got. I have done myself over the many years um and collector i do collect unfortunately um the the vicar's gun behind me is something but that that comes with you know when you when you're into military vehicles and collecting such things you tend to gather certain apparel like that and um some of it stays so historian absolutely what i'm driven by is the history um and the need to convert it into miniature really to to turn a subject that you read about and get excited about so however now is a good time to tell you about my my wonderful world war ii adventure which started when yeah, I moved here. okay so i'll keep it brief because it's 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 hours in itself um so uh on one of our pre-trips coming here uh in december 2016 the local paper would all be a firm favorite thing to buy once yeah, you arrive on the yeah. island and we had a motorhome so we'd stay in the motorhome and on the front of this little paper was Germans invade Isle of Wight radar station. Well, that's got my interest straight away. I need to read that. And at the same time, it was obviously there'd been a book released by a a local author called Adrian Searle, Isle of Wight historian. And uh, in his book, he proposed and gave evidence for that the Germans raided uh, a British radar station at at St. Lawrence, which happened to be literally the next bay from where I was staying. And where I am right now, it's just two Mm. bays away. You could walk it in 10 minutes. And uh, so I, I read the book in very rapid fashion and thought, I've got to, got to go to this site because I know exactly where he's talking about. But the book is short on many details. It's great on the kind of bigger picture story, but it doesn't go into a lot of detail. And uh, from, I guess, my background, knowledge, people I know, you know, I kind of got quite a tactical head. You look at a piece of ground and think, well, that's a very obvious covered approach. Mm. That's a very obvious uh, point of entry. And I went to this site with my metal detector on the footpath and uh, my partner was with me, Lydia, and my dog. And uh, I found stuff that just shouldn't be there. Mm. And uh, I got very, very excited, as you can imagine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I, yeah, moist is not the word. So uh, in short, <laughs> in short um, <laughs> we, we, the radar station is, you know, the, the parts of it are still very visible. They're not overgrown so much now. Um, and so from a, a tactical perspective, I, I thought, well, that's a really good point to be. I just kind of have a look there and went straight there and found a cache of uh, 11 uh, discharged 
bullets of a German with a, of German nature. Wow! <clears throat> I say German nature because um, if you know anything about firearms and um, and bullets, British 303 have got a very very big kind of wide um, uh, plate on the bottom of them, and German bullets have got like a groove cut in the side, which is for basically both are used for the extractor to extract the bullet. And I found. 11 of these bullets which had the German extractor. Now, they were all just below the worst cow poo you can imagine, cow pizza. <laughs> so, and in very bad ground. So they were very rotted and they were very mucky. Um, but I, I called Lydia and she came over and we videoed the extraction because oh, I found the smoking gun to this yeah. book. There's a load of German bullets here. And, and where I found them, you, you can't shoot at anything. You, there's nothing, you, know, you can't mm. see out to sea really. You, you can't see the radar station. You're in a bit of a dip. Um, anyway, uh, long story short, on that particular start of the adventure, uh, we took them back, we cleaned them over the period and discovered that they were American bullets. So wow. They were from a Springfield rifle, which is, the, if you've ever seen Dad's Army, they're holding a rifle. That's the P-17 German, German designed, or American designed based on a German Mauser, hence the bullets look the same. So I was quite disappointed that um, these weren't German bullets. Uh, but when I spoke to a couple of people who were, were serving and ex-serving soldiers, they pointed out, well, yeah, but they shouldn't be there. Mm. You know, if a home guard person has discharged 11 rounds, that's basically only a five five bullets in a magazine. So you've discharged it, re-stripped, clipped it, fired it again and fired one more. It's it's pretty serious to, if you discharge a weapon and don't bring back the spent rounds with a very good reason as to why you've discharged them, mm. uh, you'll be in a lot of trouble. So it kind of, the, the story went from, oh, I found the smoking gun to, I actually know they're American, to, oh, well, they shouldn't be there. So many trips back, many visits later, lots of research. I've met various people who gave testimony in the book in the local area. And uh, we've now progressed this, this uh, World War II adventure, because that's what it is. There can't be many adventures left now in the 2020s of an unsolved World War II mystery. So... I, I sit firmly on the fence of, our, I wouldn't say they've landed or they didn't land, mm. but there's an awful lot of stuff that I've found there since that should not be there. Wow. And uh, by doing lots of research, finding who had the motive, which unit would have carried it out, when they carried it out, where they landed, definitely found where they've landed. Um, we've now got a professor involved who is uh, who I showed him all the evidence, the finds and various other things. And he, he used the, the phrase, we have a plausible heritage scenario. Oh, like that. Like uh, that. Yeah. Well, it's the kind of, um, yeah, the kind of words that are used by academics and stuff. To, <laughs> he said, well, I shall, I shall write to English Nature and, and get you permission because this definitely warrants a further ground, limited ground investigation. Wow. So um, uh, we're work, working with the landowner, uh, which I hope to uh, see and talk to quite soon. Uh, the local aviation museum are all over it. They think it's fantastic that uh, such a World War II story may break. And, of course, it's part of their heritage. And they want to display all the finds and other things in the museum. Um, yeah. So uh, I even led a little battlefield study tour here in December. We had 36 engineer commando regiment. Uh, it's not commando, sorry. 36 engineer regiment, not commando. 36 engineer regiment. So uh, came over, 11 of them, uh, which included uh, commissioned officers, non-commissioned officers, warrant officers, and ordinary ranks. And uh, they had the whole story. We went and walked the ground and actually asked them to contribute because yeah. you know, they're, they're trained, yeah. young, trained men, fit, active, all the things I'm not. Uh, and um, 
they'd seen the story, they saw where the things were found. I told them the, the scenario that I think had happened from the findings. I mean, you don't go firing a live brain gun directly at an RAF working station, for example. <laughs> uh, and you don't go throwing hand grenades around the working RAF station. Well, all the fragments of those things are there. So, um, and I asked for their perspective and, and certainly the officers and warrant officers. Now you're, you're used to tasking men. Mm. That's the objective over there. This is where I think you've come in. How easy, I mean, I'm 60 and I can climb up the cliff there. You guys will shimmy up in no time. In fact, a lot of them did do. They went and jumped down it and climbed back up again just to show how easy. And they brought things to the table that I'd never even thought of. Fantastic. But from a yeah. military perspective. So for example, there's certain features in the ground which um, offer you the opportunity of very good night navigation. The features you can follow at night the background noise of the water covers up movement yeah. so they added things and many other things to the storyline which we're gathering together now and uh, hope to present once we've got these findings and either have evidence to say well yeah there's more evidence to say it did happen mm. than it didn't that's a very very compressed version yeah. of five Whoa. years of my world war ii adventure that's absolutely fascinating to hear that, Paul. That's a great, that's an amazing story, and it, and it would be, I think, quite a um, big story if it if it could be shown that the German troops were on British soil in what when did you say forty three? Did you say forty three? Yeah. Uh, well, the the provisional date that's given is uh, the night of the fifteenth, sixteenth of August, nineteen forty three. In fact, part mm. of the evidence that the author found was. Um, and it's still in the Isle of Wight um, uh, archive where the ARP reported, I'll quote, Germans spotted in dinghies off of Ventnor, use usual precautions uh, or follow usual precautions. So somebody spotted Germans in dinghies and reported it and it survived in the archive. And and oh, they really no. see, the Isle of Wight is a very small place, Ken. I didn't really realize yeah. this till I moved here, but most people know what other people are doing and not in a nasty nosy poisonous neighbor way but rumors spread rapidly and again one of the people who gave evidence in the book is a local man and uh, he remembers them all talking about it lots of local people in the day when the book was written remember it and their attitude is well we know it happened what's the big deal yeah. um and of course the author's book is um churchill's last wartime secret because Churchill made a boast um, that no German jackboots would ever land on the mainland of, of England or the United Kingdom. And of course, uh, this would in some small way breach that. And I, yeah. I don't think that's a, a serious issue um, at all. And, and Churchill, he's, Churchill was a ginger, so he can't be that bad a fellow, can he? He's not going to be that upset <laughs> about it now. <laughs> So. exactly well that, that that's fun that's fun and of course if they're in dinghies they've not dinghied from the coast of france have they you boat so yeah exactly exactly yeah. so hey, have you um fascinating story is there anything on the german side of the is there any records survive that, that might suggest that this raids took place well Again, the, the reason it came to light, um, again, it's just a fascinating story with involving the German Abwehr, which is like our MI5, you know, the, the military version. Um, so, yes, there is a German who gave a testimony um, and he's a he's a he was he died. Unfortunately, he's a highly respected uh, archivist. Mm. Renowned, um, won awards, written numerous books. Um, his work in the preservation and uh, making accessible historical archives is what he's known for. 
this man gave testimony because there were no records surviving in German records and uh, any follow-up that was done uh, over here was met with no no nothing nothing happened um, so he I think when you grow up and, and your entire life is dedicated to the preservation of history and archives mm. when you participated in something personally and everyone is saying to you no it didn't happen that's what really tipped his hand to actually not going public but he certainly uh, 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 shared his story um, both with the author of the book but also with a local gentleman called Fred Lawrence who lived in St Lawrence whose former name was Alfred Lomnitz who mm. worked with the American intelligence I mm. mean I, I, we could we was a deep hole here you need a whole new podcast for this one mate, because it, it involves u-boats uh the german abwehr german commandos english-speaking commandos whose previous experience have been in north africa um uh penetrating allied lines oh it, and i could go on um why i ticked the historian box initially because it excites me it massively excited me and to have this on my doorstep and then to find evidence to suggest that yes something certainly did happen then um yeah great and i'm just enjoying riding the adventure whichever way it turns out oh lovely well we'll, we'll have to have you back on in the future to uh, keep us updated on this paul it's uh, a fascinating story and uh, so much more to find out as you say my pleasure lovely well we'll uh, draw an end to the first section of the podcast there and um we'll be back ladies and gentlemen in a minute for our Little big game chat. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we're back. A fascinating story there from Paul about a, a German raid on the English coast in 1943. And uh, I'm sure we're going to all look forward to hearing updates on that in the future. That's a, an absolutely amazing story. Um, so, uh, big games is what the podcast is all about. And uh, we always have a little chat. In, with our guests to uh, to see what their thoughts are on the subject so um first question that everyone gets paul is um how would you define a big game what does a big game mean to you big games for me ken are where you get a number of good mates over normally over a weekend uh, mm. at least over a very long saturday um nice big table nice big table and uh yeah lots of fun basically uh lots of banter uh, yeah. and enjoying all the miniatures and the scenario that you've come up with and you want to play yeah fantastic well i think uh, that's a, that's a classic uh, a classic definition and one one we're all uh, happy with here um you mentioned um earlier on seeing some big games very early on in in your, your war game in history um and had, did you think that that had an effect on how you see war gaming well, it, initially, uh, again, sort of thinking back to that moment, uh, it was just the sheer spectacle um, and seeing, you know, people just hovering around the table. It wasn't a spectacularly well attended from a public perspective. Uh, it was in a big, big hotel, had a big function room, uh, effectively. And I'd never seen so many figures on such a big table. And the people involved were just so into it. They really, really were into it and, and very happy to share what they were doing with you. You know that, And so that excitement, it, 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 well, it, 
other people you can catch it you know you catch that excitement and even though it was a subject i wasn't that interested in i think it was a big fantasy battle um mm. but just the spectacle of all the miniatures and uh, and all the terrain and the lovely castle um at the end for example amongst other games there were historical games there as well that was part of the eye-opening for that weekend uh, and do you think because uh, some people you know will say to me that they see something like that and they they're um they're put off by it they think that they can't manage to to reach that size of a game whereas personally i find it as an i find it an inspiration um so what what did that game bring to you did it drive you on to do something similar oh or i think it must have done uh it must yeah. i can't exactly recall that direct correlation but it has to i i think like you i fall on the side of it being inspirational mm. yeah yes you could look at it and go oh i could never do that well that's one way of looking at it, but actually, let's let's look at the positive side. Go look how fantastic that is, and and talk to people who did it. You know, they started off small at some point. You know, they didn't get all these figures together and miniatures together at, in one big go. They did it over a period of time, typically with the collaboration with other people. And that's a wonderful thing about our hobby, isn't it? That mm. you can collaborate and you can take part in something, even if it's a period you don't know. If you've been given the command of, say, a brigade at the end of the table. Um, you can still delight and, and enjoy that enormously. Mm. I think uh, the the collaboration is 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 an amazing part of it, and getting together uh, a group of people to do and work on one project is a great way of making friends, of um, uh, just enjoying the hobby more than just a two hour game on a table. It, it expands it out into so many different areas. Oh yeah, totally um so what's um if you ever think back what would be some of the big games that you've played in the past that you've enjoyed and you remember well in in recent uh years moving and doing the work here most of my what well, all of my big games have been really with um alan and michael at their wonderful games room mm. um yeah they've, they've just done some spectacular games there they, those two boys are so talented you know that they don't need yeah. to say that but the the tables that they put on and the thoughts behind some of the games uh uh alan runs these most magnificent campaigns i really wish i lived near nottingham at times because um, <laughs> to, to take part in those but you know when they needed a spare commander just to command a part of this campaign that's been built up to this moment where troops have entered the table um and you've seen them publish alan publishes uh, pictures and michael published pictures on mm. their uh, store anyway so yeah um just fantastic um great tables great subjects um playing a part in a bigger campaign of course has its own pleasures it makes you a little bit more tentative even though they're not your figures or your troops that you don't want to throw them away you know <laughs> yeah. especially with the especially with the person whose army is standing next to you you're, you're one of your best mates like mr Cowan, who's who says, uh, don't you waste those cavalry. <laughs> I need them for the campaign. Um, so, yeah, you're a little bit more cautious with them. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, big games like that. Uh, before I moved, um, I had a pretty good uh, war game room there. And uh, Alan and Michael came and Chris came to uh, games there. And that was a big World War II game um, over a, a desert terrain. So I, I very often sprayed my own mats. So painters, decorators, matting is really good if you spray it and texture it um again back to what did those 20 odd years ago and uh so yeah i think the table was something like 20 odd foot long by eight foot wide uh and uh, obviously roaming hordes of tanks and other yeah. things around and of course everyone thinks of the desert to be a really bare 
piece of terrain. It's quite the opposite. And, you know, of course, there are tracks of open sand, but there's so many different terrain features within a desert. Um, and uh, yeah, some can be used for to help. Um, you know, ground is never that flat, so you know, finding a hold down position, etc. So yeah, that's big games really uh, in the sense with figures. Of course, there are big games with board games. So we've been mm. very lucky in having a number of people here to play. And that same kind of, oh, I'm going to do this game this weekend or this day, and it's going to be a good five, six hours. So um, it may involve a curry at the end of it. Oh, of course. Uh, and a few beers. Um, fantastic. So the, the, the board games that you play, are they um, like the traditional uh, Avalon Hill SPI type games with counters for battalions or you know something like a twilight imperium i don't know if you've seen that or um some of the more uh, traditional games i suppose that are games rather yeah. than war games well i i think uh, again going back to discovering and you're discovering it the spi produced you know, napoleon's battles of the quad series of you know, yes Luke, classic quatrebra and yeah. uh, wavery and i was like oh my god it was just, that was fantastic but I think I've moved on a lot from that time. So um, I think I said to you in the preamble, there was some taking the, some of the glorious maps, you know, some, some of these maps that people have created. So one of my favorites is uh, Race to the Sea, which features obviously Northern France, Belgium. And it talks about, or the game is really about the, the Battle of the Marne's finished, the Germans in retreat, and everyone's racing to create a trench line up to the coast. Um, well, that map, which is only, I think, about, um, well, 30 inches long uh, by 20 wide. I've blown it up to something like five foot by four foot. <laughs> um, and which means the hexes, of course, are quite sizable. They're a good sort of three, four inches across. And uh, rather than counters, actually using miniatures. Oh, brilliant. Uh, so there's nothing better than seeing your, your British infantry, you know, the, the small BF, as it were, with the cavalry represented as figures and the counters actually standing behind it. So actually hidden from the opponent because they can't see the factors right but they know it's british because there's a british soldier there so taking some games like that and blowing up the map uh, making it more of a more eye candy to look at really easier for other people to participate in uh and any subject from you know one of my favorite ones at the moment is uh, mrs thatcher's war which is the falklands campaign yeah. um, by white dog games uh, other ones some of the some of the axis and allies series Guadalcanal being my absolute favorite oh, i can't I think hundreds of times that's been played. Um, Victory at Sea, you know, naval games. I know you love your yeah, naval games. Yeah. You must have come across the War at Sea. Yes, yeah, classic. I haven't put miniatures on that yet, yeah. but it, it's kind of begging for it, it really. Is, yeah. Just, there'll be a <laughs> blooming lot of them. Um, so, uh, and of course, submarine games. Now, of course, they're a bit difficult because submarines mostly operate submerged, um, but, you know, it's still possible. It's still, still possible. So it, it's kind of a hybrid, really. It's, it's miniatures, but in a ball game setting done big mm. which i know the subject about you know big games kind of you can wedge it into that category yeah. i think yeah definitely did you ever see the u-boat game uh, it must have been two or three years ago that um had a like an app with it as well um and you you had a the, the board was the u-boat itself and you had crew members that you moved around in 3d and then you had a map that you would plot your position on did you, did you, have, you have you got that game I haven't got that game. No, I, I did look at it. I did kind of think mm, maybe, yeah. but um, it didn't tick enough boxes for me personally. Uh, in terms of, uh, again, the Battle Atlantic, uh, both the Allies and the, the German side, 
um, and submarines being a, a, a fascination. Um, Steel Wolves, which I've never really played, but I just get it out and look at the counters because <laughs> they're just so lovely. <laughs> and uh, the other one, which is the Battle of Atlantic, which is um, a folio game. So it's quite small, but it's one of those games you can finish in three hours. Um, yeah, so I had my Stagnite on a submarine. <laughs> mentioned that worth mentioning it at all but i, I there used to be a russian submarine on display down by the thames barrier and um our sweet talk the guy who managed it and dropped him 500 quid and he let me have it for the night with all my mates and we, we got rather pissed off oh uh, fantastic what a night <laughs> uh, all dressed as silly buggers as yeah. well we were dressed in fancy dress and uh uh, my uh, former missus used to be involved in the costume house in london and so we we uh, we borrowed certain costumes, uh, which has come up a few times with various stag nights. Um, and uh, yeah, and uh, we had the submarine for the night, and yeah, got very tiddly. Managed not to fall off it. Excellent. So, Probably a good job there was no charge in the batteries, and you weren't able to get it out to sea. <laughs> no, yeah. Uh, the, the only casualty was, um, of course, the, the the door to the one of the heads opened both ways. Oh dear! And uh, as one of my mates was just clambering off the throne. Another one barged in and the door smacked him right on the corner of the eyeball. Oh. And um, yeah, there's a bit of claret. Um, but that was the only injury, that and sore heads in the morning. That's not... Um, one of my first and only times I've drunken Russian gold vodka. Oh, never, never again. again. Never again. <laughs> um, so um, you mentioned a couple of times, and this this kind of is proper big war games, is uh, you mentioned uh, having a tag... And uh, the bread and carrier uh, with the Perrys um, as well. So, uh, have you known the Perrys for a while? You seem to have been around them a bit. Yeah, I'm not not purposely name dropping, yeah. but they they do have played and do play a big part in my wargaming mm. um, and what I do today. So, yeah, I, I first met them through uh, getting into reenactment. So that's kind of big gaming, really one to one. And there's a nice little thread here, which we'll follow through, if you will. Um, so I, um, we, we used to meet um, part of the old Barnet battlefield at the ye old Monk and Holt pub. Um, Barnet being, of course, a big battle in the War of the Roses. And, uh, well, two there, actually. Well, one there, one in St Albans, two in St Albans. And, um, yeah, we'd meet there. And uh, I got, got brought into the whole, let's go and dress up as um, people and do silly things in costume. And, uh, oh, I'll give it a go. I'm a pretty game sort of fella. And, anyway, I went along to my first training muster, which was organised mm. and... Uh, I didn't really have any kit, so um, Michael very kindly lent me his beautifully made Murray and Azure, you know, red and blue doublet. And uh, on the the last day of training, and there was people training with weapons and you know running, basically running around this beautiful about twenty acres in the middle of um, South England, and no other civilization <laughs> around. So around the campfire, drinking lots, telling stories. Oh, I like yeah. this. And then we got to Sunday afternoon and uh, we're having the last kind of pitch battle. We're chasing each other around this woodland. And um, I was I'd probably been inappropriately using this spear. But anyway, this this chap with who, who I found out later was a, ray, a razor sharp rapier. He stuck it in the top of my arm and it came out the other side. And that did hurt mightily. Yeah. And um, uh, and of course, poor old Mr. Perry's brand new doublet um, uh, became uh, ruined yeah. in a way. And I got to spend the night in the pool hospital. Uh, with a very apologetic chap coming to see me at the bedside. It, it was all right. It just felt like someone really gave me a dead arm yeah. punch and then it burned. So, yeah, being stabbed with a sword, not not the best experience, but I've had it and I can tell you about it. Anyway, the, the funny thing is that that doublet, which obviously came out and was the, 
the many a tale at many events uh, in years following, has ended up on display at Games Workshop. Wow. And here's yeah. the story. So um, they have a wonderful, uh, where they call it a conferencing room or games room that's got the most wonderful medieval um, painted walls and our textured wall coverings. And hanging on one of those displays is that their doublet. And I'm sure people look up and go, cool, that blood looks real. <laughs> but bloody is, it's mine. <laughs> it's mine. <laughs> That's just a funny a funny story. I think Alan and Michael used, because they designed all of that, mm. and they obviously got some of the props and and uh, didn't want to carry, carry on carrying the doublet around anymore. So I got into reenactment, um, which was really splendid. I got to play with and learn to shoot longbows, you know, um, chasing each other around castles and um, doing various other things, uh, learning about medieval history, a lot more about the Wotheroads, which I didn't mm. know much about when I got involved. And over many years, meet some of the most wonderful people and go to some of the most wonderful places uh, with reenactment. And um, a little story that comes to mind is that I had the, the pleasure and fortune to uh, be in charge of at the 500th anniversary of the Battle of Stoke mm. Field, you know, the 1487 one, uh, uh, being in charge of the Oxford battle. So Oxford, you know, with his vanguard, with a mixture of bows and bills. And we, we combined lots of groups together to kind of create this thing. And I was given the honor and pleasure of leading this thing. And uh, although it's reenactment and it's pretend, it still does teach you mm. the difficulties involving commanding, controlling large bodies yeah. of men. And my opponent on top of the hill, was the so-called Swiss mercenaries who were um, uh, basically English Civil War pikemen and handgunners uh, led by none other than Mr. Stallard, bless him. Ah, ah. I know. <laughs> and so uh, there was I, you know, advancing with the Oxford battle, lobbing loads of bows into his formation and him popping off guns at us. And the clash of pike and bills, mm. although we'd practiced it the day before, was still a really good spectacle and bloody great fun i have to say yeah. um you get bumps and bruises doing these sort of things and uh yeah uh we laughed about it afterwards you know, it was a, it was a great thing to do so um yeah having having met john uh uh as the commander of the uh, the so-called swiss mercenaries at the battle of stoke field so <laughs> that's pretty big one-to-one -one gaming you know it's uh, yeah of course, we're going back to the 80s, so it's not the kind of numbers you see now in reenactments. But even so, back then, it was still quite a spectacle. And, um, yeah, when you're facing that many pikemen who want to kind of stick their pike in you, that's not very nice, I'll tell you. Even though you're covered in harness, you know. And, and back then, of course, I was quite young and fit. And uh, anyone who's got the wonderful book, The Medieval Soldier by Jerry Hamilton, you'll see some lovely pictures in there of... Um, soldiers from the late medieval period that uh, mm. were photographed by Jerry of the um, company St. George, but also the white company. So you'll see a lot of pictures yeah. of uh, Alan and Michael in there, for example, and other well-known faces from the gaming industry. And the person doing a cartwheel in armor, that's me. Um, <laughs> when I was young and fit enough to do it, I don't think I can yeah. do it now. Um, <laughs> you, want you, that, you want that framed on the wall and I used to be able to do this. Yeah. Well, I think I could do a cartwheel now, but not in armour. It, it wouldn't fit me. I'm too primitive fat. <laughs> so how did you how did you come to pick up a tank, Glenn? Because um, okay. it's Thanks. not on everyone's uh, <clears throat> shopping list. No, not at all. Well, uh, I think I said to you, I saw my first tank in 1970 or thereabouts at Shoebury Garrison. 
with mm. my father. It was a Centurion Mark V gun tank. Um, it's sheer presence and the noise and being able to get up in it and look inside. You know, the soldiers very kindly let you have a look inside and even dangled you in if you were small enough. And oh, that's just, just wow. You know, so collecting model tanks followed. But of course, in the end of the Cold War, uh, in the late 80s, uh, a lot of military kit became available and and affordable, and so I started my collection of armored cars um, in 1991, I think it was, mm. a little ferret armored car, Ooh, and uh, yeah, ferret, a, a <laughs> magnificent thing, yeah. you know, and, and of course uh, a great fun. I had four of them at one time, um, <laughs> you know, different versions. I've still got one. I've kept one, and it's on the island. Just. We just built a ferret house for it, actually a little cover for it. Um, and so, you know, armoured cars progressing to other vehicles. And uh, Alan and Michael were pretty keen. I remember when I first got my ferret, I took it up there to uh, to, to where they lived and uh, in, in uh, Goffs Oak, so not far from where we lived in North London. And uh, we went out for a cabbie in it. And oh, it was nice. fantastic. You know, just, just loved it. And uh, we, as we did, you know, uh, Michael would probably be on the brain gun, you know, leaning out, uh, yeah. driving around Epping Forest, and uh, then we'd we'd get all get inside and be trying to drive on the periscopes, you know, just just for the experience. <laughs> and uh, so uh, Alan Michael's uncle Ron, um, who I did meet a couple of times, not for very long, but I did meet him. He was in, I believe, the Sherwood Rangers, World War Two, uh, a unit very famous, uh, made more publicly aware by the great book by James Holland on the subject. Mm. Yeah. And so Uncle Ron uh, was in a Stuart, Stuart tank, uh, which was called Ism. And so the goal was, you know, from over conversations and beers, let's get a tank. All right, then, let's get a tank. <laughs> so we got a tank and we painted it in the colours of the Sherwood Rangers and we called it Ism. Yeah. And uh, we did various uh, things with it, you know, driving it around. Um, I was the only one with a track laying licence, so I was the only one who could really sort of drive it on the road with a, without L plates. Um, and of course, later on, Michael lost his arm, so he couldn't really pull on the tillers. Um, and one of the, I suppose one of the, the funniest things that happened was, uh, Michael being Michael, um, he had done some filming with Band of Brothers. If, if you ever spoke to him or he did some filming, he was one of the casualties in Band of Brothers and they made him the most wonderful prosthetic to go over his, um, stump which basically consisted of lots of bones sticking out and all gore hanging off oh, of it. All right, yeah. He did the filming and he kept it in the fridge and kept it for quite a while, actually. He'd quite often um, tease people with it. Yeah. Uh, anyway, this time he thought, right, I'm, gonna, I'm doing something special here. So we were, we were fighting in this battle reenactment where we were very scripted where we drive and, and we had a little charge on the inside and we were quite near the crowd line, so the charge was on the opposite side of the tank. And we were to drive up to these German fellows and fire the gun at them, and then uh, they would fire a panzer at us and knock us out, and we'd bail out. Mm. Great, great. I could see Michael smile. Hit, what's he got up? He's, he's got something <laughs> lined up. So uh, anyway, they, they, the panzer went off. We went bang, and lots of smoke in the tank. It's all smoke pouring out, and we all try and bail out. Michael dives out, lands on the side of the crowd, waving this pathetic at them. Oh. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it was just like we were laughing because we knew what he was doing. But a lot of people in the cover were like, "Oh my god, what's he done? <laughs> That's a bit real." <laughs> so, um, and then we just laughed about it afterwards. You know, um, sort of thing you could do back in the uh, 1990s uh, period. Uh, but anyway, uh, we did that. So we did some fun things with it. But it wasn't it wasn't um, as easy to move around. I kept it where I used to live uh, on a farm. 
and um, I don't know if you've ever started a radial engine. Um, you have to turn it over 50 times to move the oil around, and then yeah. when you start it, it's like your own smokescreen, even worse than a Chieftain, apparently. And, uh, of course, it was okay, but, um, yeah, you couldn't start it every weekend uh, because of the smoke and cloud. But anyway, we bought a carrier. We thought, let's buy a carrier. Let's sell the tank and get a carrier. Yeah. And uh, we got a lovely little Mark II 1944-made Canadian brand carrier, mm. and uh, which we had a lot of fun with, really had a lot of fun with it. Uh, we pulled a six-pounder behind it for quite a few times at various shows and uh, festivals. We, we took it to Holland twice um, to do the Arnhem run. Uh, where, as I said, we, we met some wonderful, wonderful people. We even had roadie, uh, groupies. We call them groupies. We, <laughs> we, we, we went to uh, Overloon Tank Museum in, uh, in Holland and, uh, of course, parked the two carriers and a dingo in the car park while some of us went into the museum, came out, and there was this old chap and his missus there, sort of, oh, just you know, smitten them. Of course, we talked to them, and the Dutch people are so friendly. And uh, he said, oh, and you live locally. Would you like to come and... Um, see my old farm and I'll show you where the British tanks were and the battle that took place there so I'm like well yes please and so we we uh, we went we camped on the way and he met us he came and had a meal with us one evening with his wife and we told stories around the campfire and anyway we we got near to his house well, so we went to his house and his brother lived there on the farm still and uh, he said I'll tell you a story this crossroads where we lived was heavily fought over in the October mm. battles after Arnhem and um uh, the Germans were basically fighting for this crossroads and they were in our house and uh, the bombardment by the British was so intense that the German soldiers came into the cellar where we as children were and our mum and dad were. Wow. And he said, let's go into the cellar. So we went into yeah. that cellar and he told the rest of the story in the cellar. <laughs> Fantastic. It was just amazing. Yeah. And he followed us throughout the rest of the route. He followed us all the way along. We met up with him. Uh, his name was Moot. I'm sure he's dead by now because he was quite old back then. And uh, just one example of the wonderful people this hobby can bring you into contact with. Um, that and when we when we were at 2004, we, we were in the big parade over Arnhem Bridge. And, of course, many of the vehicles that take part are owned by uh, Frenchmen, Dutchmen, Germans, you know, well, many Continentals. And, because we were dressed, dressed as very, very bloody scruffy Tommies <laughs> in these two carriers and a dingo. And as we crossed the apex, the, all the veterans back in that day were allowed to sit on the top of the like, bench seats that arranged mm. for them to uh, pole position on the parade. And uh, we shouted out something to them in, in English. I went, bloody hell, you're English. I went, yeah. And you know what they all said? You're late. All the veterans shouted, you're bloody <laughs> late again. <laughs> so oh, just, we just looked, it was like, just amazing. Yeah. Just amazing. Um, yeah. Happy days Fun. with the carrier. Fantastic. Very happy. We still got it. It's in a museum on the Isle of Wight at the moment. Yeah. Um, not running at the moment, but uh, it, with a little bit of work, could be made to run again. Fantastic story. So yeah, fantastic. Well, that is proper big gaming, that mate. That is proper big gaming, <laughs> without a shadow of a doubt. Well, thank you very much for that, Paul. We'll have a another short break now, and then we'll be back with the features section. Well, hello everyone. Welcome back after stories of of tanks and uh, medieval uh, reenactment. Uh, we are back to the features section, and the first part 
as always, is the Yorkshire Gamer Quiz. And uh, for the uh, for those of you out there who get upset very easily, this is not how good a gamer you are. It's how Yorkshire Gamer you are. And they're two entirely different things. So a good score might be a positive thing or a bad score might be a positive thing. It's, uh, it's up to you and how you see your gaming. Uh, so are you ready to go, mate? Yeah, let's do it. I had family in York, by the way. I used to visit York as a child. So, uh, uh, yeah, Auntie Ethel, who lived in York, bless her. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> so it's uh, it's usually one or the other or yes or no answer. So quite straightforward. And uh, 20 questions, the first one of which is go big or go home. Well, go big is always a preference. You know, all the reasons we've talked about. Excellent. Um, contrast paints, are they great or a gimmick? I've never used them, so I don't know. I'll put you down oh, no, for the I've never used them. I'll put you Sorry. down for the shit. Okay. <laughs> Paintbrushes. Um, would you choose uh, Reek Posh, Windsor & Newton, or Yorkshire-made Pro Art? We've been buying Pro Art, oh, and we have been getting them. I've got them on my shelf behind me, so you can, oh, I can prove it to you. So, brilliant. yes, we have. Yeah. Brilliant. I keep meaning – I'm supposed to be going to the factory, and I keep meaning to – Get that sorted out. I'll do that this afternoon. Um, so, uh, 96 figures, is that an army or a unit of pike? Ooh, well, in the big games, it's, it's a unit of pike. Excellent. Uh, six by four as a table, is that a big game or a small game? That's a small game. It's a small game. Going well so far. Uh, when you're organising a battle, would you prefer points-based or historical order of battle? Historical every time. Excellent, excellent. Because uh, you did say you did some competition gaming, didn't you? Mm, once. Years ago, once. Never again. Never yeah. again. Never again. Was, did you say the guy was chasing you around trying to get a rematch because you'd won? Yeah, he did. He literally, he was, I, I can remember it well because Jed, the umpire, had come over and interrupt because he not only was I playing him, I was playing his mate who was sitting there coaching him with the rule book. Oh, all right, I okay. I don't normally complain, but I complained at that point and Jed yeah. told him to, put the book away yeah. and I beat him. Um, I got the trophy. It's still in the cabinet. I don't know why I kept it, but it's still in the yeah. cabinet. And and he turned up at the club twice. They're saying, I demand a rematch. I'm like, I'm sorry, I've got a game organised with my friend Matthew. Yeah, well, I've come all the way from South London for this. You've got to play me again. You've got to give me a chance. I was like, no, go away. <laughs> you git. Go away. <laughs> and he was a short ass. He's classic short ass stooping uh, chap when he was saying it. I, was, uh, I can't forget him really. So, uh, yeah. So I, I I did it once. Uh, clearly, the games were over a period of weeks. The leading up to the grand final. Yeah. Um. Uh, and first person I played was Kevin Dallimore. Wow. And and I remember because we spent most of the game talking about how he painted all these naked ancient Britons and about, you know, he had lots of, they're all naked, obviously, and yeah. they were quite well hung, some of them. I couldn't <laughs> help commenting on them. And he told me about how he painted them. And, and with the, my saluted kind of dealt with his naked chappies quite quickly. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, we spent the rest of the time talking about painting. And so you meet great people and then you meet gits. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. What a story. <laughs> Kevin Dallimore and his naked, his naked Brits. Ancient <laughs> Britons. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, when you mix in your paint, do you like a wet palette or an old bit of MDF? Oh well, uh, to be honest with you, I, I just put it on a little palette, uh, plastic palette, plastic and when palette. it's dried up, it's gone. That, well, that's good so, enough for me. Um, when you're undercoating, do you go black or white? Oh, now I use grey. Grey, a bit of a halfway, bit of a halfway. Yeah, 
It seems quite popular, Grey is, I have to say. I have to say. Yeah, Halford's un primer undercoat is brilliant. Oh, yeah, I'm, I use their black um, and their yeah. white. I use white for horses. Um, yeah. So uh, it's hot drink time. Is it Yorkshire tea or a dirty mucky coffee? Uh, both. And I'll Ooh. tell you why. <laughs> we we have coffee in the morning in the workshop and yep. we have Yorkshire tea in the afternoon. Ah. That's, that's our routine. Andy, who works with me, he's very particular, and that's what we do. In fact, afternoon tiffin will be probably coming up quite soon, and it will be a cup of Yorkshire tea. Oh, brilliant. That's what we like to hear. That's what we like to hear. Um, and coffee to get you going in the morning, then I take. Is that the. Yeah, the he loves his coffee. I, I like coffee. Yeah. Yeah. Did you, uh, in the last episode, I was talking to George Nafziger and he was saying that when he was in the Navy, it was like brewing for 12 or 14 hours and it just tasted dreadful. Yeah. <laughs> I, bet the, I bet the spoon stood up in there. Oh, dear me. Oh, dear. Uh, right. So, uh, question 10 uh, War game units, do you like them tightly packed or socially distanced? Uh, nice and tightly packed when it's appropriate. Brilliant. Um, are we going for a two-hour club game or a weekend monster game? Oh, weekend every time if given the opportunity. Oh, brilliant. brilliant. Um, oh, now this could be an interesting one considering your place in the United Kingdom. It's the avocado question. Um, so, mm. avocado, is it just posh, mushy peas? I think so. We, we don't see much of it on the island down here. Um, oh, is garlic it... is the is the popular thing we grow the most amazing garlic in the tropics down here oh, um in so much so we've got a world-renowned isle of white garlic farm fantastic and that that has a story linked to world war ii if you want to hear yeah, it go on, go on, no, go on, tell me. okay so i only, only know this because I, I visit it regularly and you can read it in all their buff yeah. so um back in world war ii many of the soe flights were flown from sandown airport on the island oh, right, yeah. which is very close to the garlic farm and some of the um, pilots uh, or people working were uh, free French. And their one thing was they missed garlic. They really missed their garlic. So on one of the SOE flights where they land in a field and drop off a person and pick up paperwork, they picked up lots of garlic and brought it back. And that's the seed bed for the garlic that's grown on the Isle of Wight farm. Fantastic. Or one of the many. So, yeah, it has a link back to World War II. And, and you can imagine after the first crop was harvested, they were some very happy Frenchmen. Brilliant story. Brilliant story. I bet nobody's ever snuck in an avocado, have they? No, no. no. I don't know where you'd put it. No. Dreadful. Anyway, never mind. Yeah. Um, question 13. Um, the universal question so far. No pressure on you here, Paul. Uh, round dice, spherical dice, are they allowed on your table or banned? No. What are they thinking? <laughs> Especially when you hear my 101, you'll understand why I'm so anti that. What? What was someone think? What were they smoking when they came up with that That's idea? That's unbelievable, isn't it? So, mm. I just, forty-three episodes, everyone banned. Yeah. Somebody, um, totally. Somebody brought me um, a guy called Fraser. And I do apologise, I forgot his second name. At Salute, um, he brought he bought me brought me one. Oh my god! So it's like a football. I have one in the house. So I'm going to do I'm going to do a funny video on it later on in the year. Oof. But uh, thank you, Fraser, for that. That's very kind of you. Um, so, uh, down the chippy, are you going to choose haddock or cod? Oh, cod. cod. Yeah, we've got a really good chip shop here on the Undercliff. Yeah. Absolutely brilliant. Their cod is fantastic. Oh, that's what we like to hear. Love a, love a bit of cod myself. Um, mm. Oh, we mentioned this uh, earlier on. Uh, do you love a good table and a set of rules? 
like an armor penetration table yeah well that's that's kind of what got me started really and got me massively excited at the thought of that so yeah for nostalgia absolutely um you know and there are tables and charts in chain of command which we play yeah. um so they're there they're there for a reason they serve a purpose yeah, exactly uh, oh you might you might not get this one um question 16 28 mil is king yes or no no no, no not for me <laughs> I, I grew up with 20 mil, uh, 176, you know, HO scale, yeah. 172nd. That's, that's, that's why, you know, 53 years I've been playing with that scale. Yeah. To, what yeah, can I say? Yeah. No worries. We'll talk more about scale uh, in the next part of the podcast. Um, but uh, question 17, unpainted miniatures allowed on the table, yes or no? No, no. Excellent. Um, I think you're not into football, are you? Uh, no, no, I saw a picture. No. I saw a picture of you at a Sabutio table. Uh, yes. at, um yeah. Is it in power in Toyman in pool? In Toyman in pool, yes, indeed. They they have a permanent table set up there, and uh, I was with my old school buddy Steve Renwick, who runs Battlezone Miniatures, and uh, he used to play that. I was never into football, and he said, "Come on, let's have a go." Yeah. So we had a go on the Sabutio. Oh, brilliant! Table. Oh, yeah, I used to play Sabutio yeah. a lot when I was younger, and and I have to say a big shout out to Entoyment as well. Um, we popped yeah. in there when we were on holiday on the south coast a few years ago, um, and it's a great shop. Great shop. Oh, I wish I wish we had something like that nearer yeah. here. You know, um, to have that as your local store, stroke club room, stroke gaming shop. Mm. Oh, you're there are lucky people there, and Pete. And the team there are just brilliant. Yeah, fantastic, fantastic place. Uh, so, question 18 is a football-related question, and uh, it is Bradford City or Leeds United? Well, I know from listening to your pot, you like Bradford, <laughs> so if I'm given a choice, I'll stick with the host's oh, choice. Oh, good lad, good lad. Well done. Um, question 19, a Wars of the Roses question. You know a bit about this. Um, so, is it Yorkshire or the other place over the hill? Now that's a, I was always a Lancastrian oh, in the War of the Roses reenactment. I know. Oh, what can I say? Oh. I was always a Lancastrian. Um, I know the Perrys, of course, they were bloody Yorkists. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we we'd always have a lot of fun over that subject. But oh, I'm a Lancastrian. Oh dear, 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 dear me. Uh, and the final question is: uh, Games Workshop are they the work of the devil? <laughs> I've heard people talk about this a yeah. lot and I'll fall on the side of the wall that says work of the devil no. only because of their policies about restrictions on gaming and not being able to use miniatures yeah. and other things. I think they've done incredibly good things for our hobby, you know, getting kids reading the books, getting the interest. Many people who transition from those subjects into historical come from yeah. that initial excitement. So they've done lots of good, but the corporate policies are not. Healthy yeah, yeah. it's a, it's a, and it's why I stuck it in there. It is a very interesting question, and there are pros and cons uh, to both sides of it, which makes, and you know, some of the some of the questions that you know are obvious, like Yorkshire tea or dirty mucky mm. coffee. It's always Yorkshire tea, um, mm. but with the Games mm. Workshop one, there's there's you know, it's a, it's an interesting way of getting a conversation started. So that's uh, that's mm. extremely good. Well, you've done extremely well, mate. You've got um, a couple of half points in there, give you eighty-seven and a half percent, which is uh, which is very good. Or very. See, uh, I told you, I've got family in Yorkshire, so must be a bit of a correlation there. Good old Auntie Ethel. Uh, yeah, proper proper Yorkshire name, Ethel. 
Right. Uh, there we go. So, um, moving on from the quiz, uh, the next part of the features section is the uh, War Games Room 101. And um, if, you, if you've not heard the podcast before, this is a section where um, we get our guests to put something in War Games Room 101, which is a place where you put your deepest, darkest fears. And uh, as I've said before, I kind of thought that this would only last for um, six or seven episodes but we've been going for quite a while with it now um and people just keep coming up with new ones and i absolutely love it because it's your chance to just get it off your chest and that thing that really annoys mm. you so paul have you come up with one mate oh yeah it was a no-brainer <laughs> <clears throat> bloody dice droppers dice droppers and what i mean by that are people who don't give their dice a good role oh. when you're when someone's calculating oh well for this you need this factor and you could see them looking into their hand discreetly turning the dice in the right direction and then come the time to drop the to throw the dice they just drop it gently in front of them and go oh look i've got a six. Oh, funny that isn't it oh. so bloody dice droppers ken dice are, droppers are, you know Putting your, your dice in a cup and giving them a bloody good shake is great fun because you look on the person's face opposite, you're shaking it, and again, what's he going to get? Oh, I hope he doesn't get a six, you know, but it's the unknown. <laughs> or putting your dice in, into a dice tower and then see them tumbling out. Yeah. That's part of the fun. That's the friction of a game. But bloody dice droppers, they try and twist it and just give a little drop on the table. And it's like, oh, no. No, no. God, yeah. And that is... That... They swiftly get handed a cup and not put them in there and give them a good that shake. Is, that is really, really annoying. I've... Uh... I've shown these a few times, but we have these in our war games room. Um, and yeah. these are like barrels, uh, teak barrels. And this one is from HMS Iron Duke. Oh, wow. Um, from the Battle of Jutland. And we've got loads of them behind us. What's this one from? That's from War Spite. Uh, and quite great names. The funny thing is that um, sometimes the dice get stuck in the bottom. And if you're not paying right. attention, you can, you know, roll them out and twice as many dice come out as you thought <laughs> well that's fate though, it's isn't like, it? yeah because clearly before the chance. clearly before they haven't yeah. come out and you've missed out on mm. that bit they just happen to come out yeah there's, there's no cheating involved it's just hilarious when it happens and you, you look in the bottom and there's exactly. like a five or six dice just stuck in there. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so there you go, Kent. Bloody dice, dice droppers, droppers. That's my one hundred and one. Yeah, I've seen, I've seen that. I haven't seen it for a while, but I do know what you're talking about. So that is a that is a perfect one. Another one, another one to join uh, the vault at War Games Room one hundred and one. Uh, and as that closes behind us, we open up our Desert Island War Game, and uh, this is very similar to Desert Island Discs on uh, Radio Two now. I think it is. Um, so it, you're going to be cast away on a desert island pool and uh, you can take a game with you any game war game you want size etc doesn't matter what would be your ideal game to take uh okay it's mrs thatcher's war uh, by white dog games uh it's a solitaire game yeah um uh, and i've played it many times um, particularly if I was stranded between the months of April and June, which is always a time I get quite reminiscent about the Falklands War. So, yeah, uh, no question that game. Great result every time, very mm. difficult to win. And the, the story that comes out of the game as you play it is so memorable. Mm. So is it... Ticking it, all the boxes. Is that one a... Is it a tactical game? Is it a more 
political game? How or does it work on all the different factors? Oh, it, it covers a number of mechanisms. It, obviously, politics played a big part in the Falklands War, as mm. did the naval campaign and then the ground campaign. So it it uh, splits it into various areas for a very cunning use of um, like a, a sequence of play, which again, after the first three or four goes, you know what it is. So you just kind of intuitively play it. Politics are involved by some random dice rolling oh, nice. in terms of yeah, you can get in interventions from the UN or the uh, American um, diplomatic missions that were going on or all, all the many subjects that were covered in the Falklands are, have got a little place in this game. It's really well thought out. Um, I love what Ben Madison, who's the designer, did with the game. Mm. Um, it's not perfect. Like any yeah. game, you could always improve it. But it's great. Out of the box, it's blooming fantastic. Excellent. I'll keep an eye out for that. That sounds like a good one. Um, and um, you're allowed to take a book with you other than a religious mm. book. So uh, what would you take book-wise onto the uh, desert island? Well, I've actually taken this book onto a desert island and not that's not the reason i've chosen it um so uh, but it is it's an interesting comparison so uh the book is by anthony mockler mm. and it's called highly Selassie's war the ethiopian campaigns 1935 to 1941 ah. so uh it's just it's a little paperback book uh, that wonderful man dave lancaster pushed it under my nose at a war game show knowing i like such things yeah and he was absolutely right it's totally thumbed and and been read a couple of times but uh, each time i read it i find different things in it and for anyone who wants to be inspired by interwar gaming or even early world war ii you know the battles in east africa eritrea and abyssinia offer some of the war gaming gold you know anyone who wants to do boys own stuff but it's world war ii i mean the only ever real cavalry charge against tanks not the made up one in poland actually happened happened in the abyssinian war wow and it's described in great detail in anthony's book and he gives a great description of all the the various names and terminology i learned so much mm. i mean like rastafari uh, uh, the desert island i was on was jamaica i went there for a holiday and i thought i'll take this book because it had the colors of the you know the the three rainbow colors on the front and um number of people who walk past and say well, that's an interesting book or that's an interesting book that's what's that yeah. about and uh the conversations and i was able to educate uh even a rastafarian actually i went to a a, a beach talk by a rastafarian at this uh, place we were staying mm. and uh, i listened to him talking and uh i said oh um you know um highly selassie um because you, know, you keep talking about uh, him you know that's not his name that's his title i was like oh, what do you mean i said well his real name was tafari maconan and he got called Raz Tafari because Raz is the Ethiopian name for a head of a general, a general of an yeah. army. So Raz Tafari. And he's like, and you're a Rastafarian. What's the correlation? And he, he was kind of a bit baffled, not the usual, <laughs> usual yeah. um, commercial tourist talk. And, um, you know, we talked about all kinds of aspects of, uh, of that side of things. And at the end, he gave me a nut, a special yeah. nut. And uh, he said, because uh, his whole talk was about living in the rainforest and 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 how about rare Rastafarians living in the rainforest, and he said, uh, he said, you'll know a lot about this, young man. <laughs> Have this nut. He said, if you ever you're feeling unwell, take the nut out of the shell, shave it, and make a tea from it, and it'll make you well. And I was like, uh, am I going to get this back through customs, uh, customs yeah. in the airport? <laughs> I'm going to put it somewhere, have I? And he's like, no, 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 it's quite okay. <laughs> And I've still got that nut in my work, in my little uh, bookcase. I've not had the chance to take it, oh, but uh, it's just a great story that a book like Anthony Mockler could get you into a conversation about Rastafari with a Rastafarian 
on a desert island. Amazing. Who would have thought? Amazing. Perfect book. Perfect book. Lovely story. And finally, and finally, um, is there a War Games unit, either one that you've owned or one you've seen in a magazine or something uh, that you would love to own and take with you on the island? Well, I, I kind of misread that when you asked me that question because I thought, as in, take a physical unit with you. <laughs> and I, I thought, well, if I'm on a desert island, I, nothing better to have a set of Marine Commandos because they know how to live yeah. in that. And I thought, Naval Party 8901, who were the original garrison on uh, 1982 on the Falklands, who better to help me comfortably live on a desert island? And can you imagine the fireside stories oh, that get God, shared? Yeah. Absolutely. What really happened on 2nd of April, you know, um, and if you, if there's a book that kind of tells you a lot about that modern, again, this is back to that, you know, well, the war that we lived through and thought we knew, you know, and you listen then to the real stories from Naval Party 8901. And as they quite rightly said, we, we were 70 Royal Marine Commandos jacked up young and fit. And if you think we discharged four and a half thousand rounds and only hit four people, you don't know us. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, and just like that, I just thought, well, they'd be great to help me live on a desert yeah. island, and the no. stories. Would I, be like I like that. So sorry, I misread no. your question slightly. That's but... perfectly valid interpretation. I like that. Uh, we'll take that, and that's no problems at all. Uh, well, thanks very much for that, Paul. Some great answers there in the features section, and some uh, some nice discussion as well. So uh, we'll uh, have a break for the last time before we move on to our big topic. So uh, we are back in the uh, the big topic section to talk about early war miniatures. And uh, we've just had a, a recording failure. So uh, this is take two for me and Paul, uh, but we'll try and make it take one for yourselves out there. Um, and uh, if you remember, Paul, uh, about uh, 10, 15 minutes ago, um, we spoke about early war miniatures as a name. And uh, that was, we had a little bit of a, a laugh and a joke about, how long that lasted is a good idea when you wanted to put some uh, late war figures out. So uh, just tell us about that name choice and uh, and uh, how you feel about it now. Uh, well, early war miniatures really came about because um, the range that I bought from Tom Lobley, who uh, ran a range called uh, Tom's Tins. <clears throat> it was a really good range of World War Two figures that no one really knew about. He never really put it on. He never put it online at all. He only really advertised in uh, magazines. Uh, I used to go to Sheffield Triples and Duxford and a couple of other shows with them. And uh, I was a customer of his. And uh, long story short, um, I personally uh, was working, uh, doing a very, very stressful job uh, with within IT for uh, military operations. Uh, and I thought, if I carry on doing this, it's going to blooming kill me. So like many people approaching their late 40s, you kind of say, well, if I wanted to work myself, what, what would I do? You know, what, what do you do? And it was really um, Alan Michael, after discussing over a beer, kind of suggested, well, why don't you get into making miniatures? You know, it's something you've always been interested in and you've dabbled with. So uh, I did. And uh, the person who casts for um, Perry Miniatures, Ep, also did the casting for Tom in Nottingham. So Tom's a Beeston chap, lives in Beeston still to this day. And... Uh, I met Tom at Duxford in the January, sorry, the June of uh, 2010, and uh, we discussed that he wanted to sell the business, and I uh, said I'd like to buy it. I, I called him in the October, um, left it a period of time for him to think, big decision. He basically said, uh, oh, I'd, 
didn't think you blooming meant it. You know, you <laughs> left it so long. And yeah. and uh, I said, well, no, I, it's a big decision, Tom. I want you to have thought about it. Mm. So we did a deal. We bought the business. But it was on the proviso. Tom said, you know, please, he said, please let me carry on making toy soldiers for you. He said, uh, if I don't do that, you know, it's not. It's what I really enjoy. So mm. he needs to do it. So and very happily, very very happily allowed that to carry on. You know, Tom. Tom's a really good designer and, and a legend, and and now a good friend. So uh, I, I bought it. Um, I think Tom's way of selling figures back in Tom's tins was th- there were plastic bags within boxes, and on the tops of the plastic bags there were a little bit of cardboard that said French motorcycles. And when you wanted to buy French motorcycles, you put your hand in the bag and found the ones you wanted and <laughs> bought them out when, how much. And um, yeah, very, very old school way of doing it. Mm. And uh, so I, it took me three months to kind of work out what I actually had. Uh, and you had some fantastic ranges of, you know, Norwegians, mm. French, Dutch, Belgians, um, British, BEF, you know, real Polish, really unusual early war subjects. So my father's history in the early war and my keen interest in that subject I thought, let's call it early war miniatures, you know, and of course that worked for a while. Um, <laughs> did, didn't really work once we started, uh, once the purchase of Skytrek's 20 mil range of min- the models, not the figures, the models came uh, and all the wonderful weaponry that was produced mm. uh, by them. Um, we kind of stretched ourselves and plus Tom also has an interest in the interwar and uh, the uh, First World War. Mm. So, in fact, Tom is working now on a bit of an exclusive for you, Tom. Tom is working on 1914 Belgians to be oh, followed wow. by 1914 Germans um, to go with our 1914 French and British that we already do. So, uh, and I always say to Tom, you know, what do you fancy doing, mate? You know, and he sometimes <laughs> comes up with wacky ideas. I'm yeah. like, well, I'm not sure there's much money to be made in that one. Um, and by the way, just because someone else has done a range doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. Um, we we will often take on stuff that other people do as well because we want to do it in our style in in, mm. in our way. Um, so never never frightened of that. In fact, it's, it just gives people more choice. It's, mm. it's a good thing, not a bad thing. Um, so anyway, so Tom Tom still makes figures for us. Other people involved in the business. Um, there's Lydia. Uh, Lydia is my partner. Uh, we both live here on the South Island in the mm. tropics. <laughs> um, she does all my post and admin, which is really good because I'm rubbish at it and uh, I just rubbish at doing paperwork uh, and and i i pay her in good loving yeah so she's she's very overpaid <laughs> never needs a pay rise um uh andy uh andy brought the tea up bless him um andy is a local island lad and uh when i moved over i put some adverts out to people to come and work with us and he answered that call we had an interview and uh, he didn't know much about world war one or world war two tanks at the interview because one of the questions was, what's the difference between a Matilda 1 and a Matilda 2 tank? And kind of important if you're going to be packing them, you need to know the difference that's, that, and making them. That's, so, that's my perfect interview question, that is. I'd be all right on that yeah. one. <laughs> yeah, you'd have done well, mate. You'd have done well. Um, and uh, so, uh, but he knows an awful lot now about tanks and guns and artillery and uniform styles um, because he's had to. And so he does the vast majority of the production and packing now for dispatch. Uh, which is brilliant because that frees me up to do more of the stuff I'm not very good at doing, like the advertising and putting stuff on the website, for example. There's probably in excess of 100 codes that are not even on the website. They appear at shows because we've made them and packed them, but they're not on the website. So, uh, and I need to do more of that. Um, Tom, obviously, we've talked about uh, being a legend mm. and his history within minifigs. And then Tony, who does some painting for us, Tony Jones, who's a 
brilliant painter and getting more and more stuff painted by him so that's that's where we started that's kind of uh they're the people involved now um i think we talked about moving to the island it's about just under four years ago we moved here you know series of things in life meant i had to move house um sell some of my tanks you know it's called a divorce <laughs> not a good thing no. um so uh best thing could happen to me but anyway that's another thing yeah. and uh so we moved here uh didn't know anybody but do you know what life's too short you know it's like starting the business i never regret having a go I gave myself two years was make it work um you know something i mentioned in my notes for later but it's appropriate to say it now if you want to get into making miniatures and models to be a rich man you're going yeah. the wrong way yeah if you want to get into a business where you'll do things you enjoy and are happy and can earn a wage, do it as soon as you can. Um, very and, wise advice. Yeah. Very wise advice. Very, and so I'm very lucky with Andrew, Andy, working with us here. You know, he comes here four days a week, um, and uh, we're mates now. Mm. We're literally mates. You know, doing the first review with him in the first year was easy. Doing it now is hard because he's a mate. It's like yeah. right, Andy. Put my boss out on now. I don't like. I never say you work for me. You work with me. Yeah. We work. We work together. And it's like right. Let's get all that nonsense out. Let's get a beer and have a game. Yeah. You know. So. Uh, um. So yeah. Very lucky to have Andy working with us. And I think I said to you, he's almost perfect. If he was ginger, it'd be perfect. But you know, not everyone should be perfect. He's nearly. So. They go buy him some hair dye. Oh, I could try. He's got a lot of hair. Be a lot of bottles of dye. Um. Um. So yeah, very lucky in that in that team to be yeah. you know on this island. Um. I built the workshop when we first came here and a big helper in that, by the way, was my friend, Steve Renwick, mm. uh, who runs Battlezone Miniatures. We met each other at the Derby show. This is an interesting story, if I may, because it does relate to early war miniatures and, and, and moving to the island. So uh, we did the Derby show in 2017, which was not in Derby. It was somewhere oh, about 35 minutes I, away from Derby. I took my Jutland game to that show and I just mm. remember driving and driving and I was looking at my mate going, are you sure this is the Derby show as London yeah, was getting yeah. closer and closer and closer? So, yeah, uh, yep. I do remember that show. But there was no there was no space between the trade aisles. And, uh, yeah, no. anyway, yeah, I know the one. Uh, we could go into yeah. that, but let's not not do that. But, you know, <laughs> what, what was clearly looking like a disaster when we turned up on the, the Friday and there was no space for us, you know, and I went and found the organiser who couldn't be bothered. And he went, oh, well, um, can you make your stand in a different shape then? I was like, well, I can, but there's n I'll have to stretch into the, the aisles because you've left no space. Anyway, he was being berated by lots of traders. Yeah, I can imagine. Quite aggressively imagine. and quite rightly so. So I ended up putting my stand almost into the front of the stand directly opposite me, which was Battlezone Miniatures. And uh, we, we traded on a Saturday. It was still quite a good show. There was still a lot of people, mm. just very difficult to manoeuvre, particularly those in wheelchairs. They yeah. just couldn't yeah. get around. Um, anyway, um, I, I was staying overnight in Nottingham, which was, again, a lot further than I thought for Derby because <laughs> yeah. it yeah. wasn't in Derby. Yeah. So uh, we drove back and we got thought, said to Andy, uh, uh, said to the chap held me, it wasn't Andy at the time, let's uh, let's just, we'll get there in the morning. We got there about half past 10, I think, you know, we both a bit hungover. Mm. And uh, again, Steve was there. He'd opened up a stand for us and... Uh, and we got talking because it's Sunday show is always quiet. I said, like, you've got a very familiar accent. And he goes, yeah, I grew up in Edmonton. I was like, well, so did I. He goes, how old are you? He's like, oh, back then, 55. Like, so am I. What school did you go to? Coil and Rose. like, bloody hell. You're not Steve Renwick of Lion um, <laughs> Road, Edmonton, are you? Like, yeah. I like, bloody hell. We hadn't seen each other since we were 
in uh, you know early teens. Wow. And Steve had been trading as Battlezone miniatures for 15 or 13 years Fantastic. at that point. So he's been in the business a long time. So we instantly clicked. We instantly clicked. We, you know, the memories flooded back. Um, he was looking to change what he was doing with Battlezone miniatures. Um, he wanted to get into World War II 20 mil models and I'm very happy to encourage that. Uh, and uh, long story short, um, I ended up basically taking the American Skycheck range, which we had, and selling that to him. So he had a base start line of all those lovely American uh, vehicles. Um, and the Sergeant Major Miniatures, which I'd bought, uh, had a wonderful range of late war Americans and, and mid-war Americans. So he got those as payment for helping build the work. Well, he built the workshop. I just labored for him. So when we moved here, uh, first four days was clearing the bamboo jungle. Yeah. You know, I found two <laughs> Japanese prisoners who were still in there. The war was over. And uh, we, we cleared that. And uh, we built the workshop, which I think I said. Yes, yeah, of, amazing. Um, where bifold doors on the end. We look out, we, all we can see is the ocean and the RAF when they come past and the Navy when they come past. What It was my dream to build a workshop with that kind of a view. Steve helped me make that happen. Uh, and so I've been assisting and helping him where I can. He's off and running now with the 20 mil stuff he's doing. It's just beautiful. Fantastic. Uh, his Russians mm. are just beautiful. And so it's great to see. And and now his range is established. I take his Russians and Americans to shows and he takes my Germans and Japs and other things that complement his ranges to shows that we're oh, not brilliant. at. Because when we're both together, we just leave those bits yeah. behind. Um, so, you know, that was a great, Derby was a bit of a disaster in many ways, but actually for me, it was the best thing for me. Oh, fantastic. Um, in meeting Steve again and getting into contact and, and finding a very good, true, lovely friend. Amazing. Again, after all Amazing coincidence. So, uh, yeah. So coincidences, exactly. Um, so yeah, moving abroad, we built a workshop, um, life things happened, forced the move, um, yeah, so many things about Ventnor appealed in terms of, you know, as a kid, I grew up, I think I said to you, down by Shoebury, by the yeah. sea wall. I always wanted to live near the sea, but the person I was with before never did. And it's like, well, do you know what? I can now. And Lydia, uh, my partner, said, oh, I'd love to live in the sea. So we did. And we moved down here, built the workshop, finally built the man cave now uh, and various other things. And uh, what a great place to run a miniatures yeah, business. Fantastic. You know? Well, well, we'll delve into a few um, different topics around the uh, around the, the the business itself, uh, and we'll start with with scale, if we may, and um, twenty mm. mil. Now, tw mm. it, it's been a massive World War Two scale for a long, long time. With um, rapid fire, I think. Um, was a big driver for that everything was was 20 mil for that particular set of rules and and that's just gone through a recent renaissance with rapid fire reloaded mm. um so 20 mil you've 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 stuck with it is that is have you ever thought about other scales how, how what's the, the thought processes with that uh yeah always 20 mil uh i think i said you have 53 years now i've been playing with miniatures and figures yeah. in this scale after that amount of time, it becomes a natural thing when you look at something and when you go to make it. Yeah. So as a scale, yeah, absolutely. And never in question is it's what I know, it's what I grew up mm. with. Um, I personally like the the way the miniatures look on the table and the size of table you can create using 20 mil as your scale and the abundance of choice. You know, uh, now I know 20 mil is not a popular scale with the Nottingham based Wargames media because mm. um, they very rarely, if at all, feature it 
and that's a real shame. But if you just think of how many businesses there are involved in making products and miniatures for this scale, it's a list as long as your arm. And many of them are big corporate organizations. There was not uh, people wanting to buy this stuff. Those organizations wouldn't exist. So 20 mil has always been popular. Mm. For many of us, it's what we started with. Many of your guests I've heard have often referred to getting into the hobby through airfix. Yeah, yeah. You know, and you hear that storyline repeated in many podcasts from people of a certain age, certainly, are uh, talking about how they got into this hobby. So for me, as a scale, always going to be the one. Um, interesting about figure height, you know, 20 mil is the definition of apparently eye level to foot. Mm. I don't look at it that way. Uh, the way I look at it is um, because we're all different shapes and sizes. Mm. You know, when I met you, I think I'm a little bit taller than you, but um, and Andy's much taller than me. But if we were carrying a rifle, the rifle would be the same size. So important when we're doing figures and design, uh, all the all the equipment is consistent scale. But you'll see our figures have a different size and build. So, for example, our Japanese got an average height of about five foot three. You just look at all those pictures of the terrible British Army surrendering in Malaya. Yeah. Big, tall chaps, you know, um, Percival, big, tall, bucktooth chap with his shorts, white knees, standing next to a little Japanese fellow with a rifle and a bayonet who's five foot three. Yeah. You know, so if you're going to do the figures, the equipment's consistent, but the height needs to change. I think it's part of the character of, of the figures when you're putting them together. So that's the scale. That's always going to be my scale. Um, I game in other scales. For example, I've got a quite a large collection of uh, six mil stuff uh, for um, uh, GHQ, lovely GHQ and Naval oh, models. Yes, they are. And I've also got my old 15 mil um, War of the Roses figures. Still, mm. still got those. Don't come out very often. Um, <laughs> so I've still got those. Um, yeah. So if that's my scale, Ken, and yeah. that's where I'm always going to be. Yeah. I, my my friends um, Richard Harris and Chris Flowers who are they do massive games and and Richard runs um, the legendary war games holiday uh, center. They use 20 mil for their rapid fire games. And um, lots of people have got big collections in that scale and, um, and, and have stuck with them. And, and, and rightly so it, it is, it is a good scale for, for big uh, world war two war gaming and a very popular one, as you say. Um, yeah. Colin's a lovely chap, by the yeah. way. I often have a lovely chat with him and a, a cuppa at the York show where we often bump into him and have a chat. And uh, yeah, it, I think what he's done with rapid fire is just fantastic. Again, it, it helps to make a subject more popular and people buy, buy our stuff for it as well as other people's stuff for it. Yeah. There's a huge generation of gamers who got their world war two fix from Colin's rules and um, all the subsequent supplements that he did for, for, for that particular for game. So yeah, much, uh, much appreciated. Colin. Thank you very much for that. Um, so you've stuck on your scale, which, you know, well done, well done. Um, but how do you choose your your ranges when you, you come to think about a new range? What's the, I mean, you mentioned earlier on that Tom comes up with some of the most obscure stuff that he possibly can. Um, but, so what what's the thought process when you come to think about a, a new range and do and do customers give you lots of ideas as well? The honest answer is both routes. Yeah. And here's an example from both. A customer at Warfare one year said to me, "Have you seen that new film 
about the Danish fighting the Germans called April the 9th or 9th of April is the name of the film. It's in Danish. Yeah. I bet it's really good. And he was so enthusiastic. He got his mobile out and he showed me a little clip from the trailer oh, for the yeah. film. I thought, well, that looks good. Yeah. That's, that's good. So uh, that was on the Sunday. So it was always quiet on the Sunday at Warfare. So I had some thoughts about it. I spoke to Tom mm. and uh, I did a bit of research. And of course, you quickly realize that they've got something called a Nimbus motorcycle. Oh, yes which is a straight inline four cylinder shaft driven motorbike with a bloody great auto cannon on the side. It's like Mad Max 1940. <laughs> so being a fan of Mad Max, uh, I just thought, oh, wow, this, this got me more research. You do. Um, I started looking on various websites. I started asking out for anyone who had information and I had two lovely Danish gentlemen contact me. Uh, I cannot remember both their names, but one was called Lars. And uh, he said, oh, I hear you're looking at doing a range of Danes. Bear in mind, this is now the December. I keep Tom up to it. He was doing some research as well. And uh, he said, I've got a lot of English translations of Danish military books on the subject. Would you like them? I was like, oh, yes, please. That'd be fantastic. And Lars, and apologies, I can't remember the other gentleman's name, um, sent me bucket loads of translated uh, and untranslated but pictures of Danish military equipment, wow. and also some of the stories that went behind the actions that took place. So previous to that November, if anyone said to me, oh, and I think that there was all often common stories about, well, why would you do the Danes? They lasted six hours. What's the point? Yeah. You know, it's, it's not much fun. It's a bit like, you know, those, why would you do a game set in Luxembourg? Well, this recent year, a very good game that's in set in Luxembourg has been done by aid uh, of the Deal War mm. Games Club who's got a fantastic game with a great scenario set in Luxembourg. But anyway, back to the Danes. So we rigorously attack this range. And when I do a range, well, blow me on trumpet, we try to do it as fully as we can. We, you know, we get as things like the infantry carts, um, the motorcycles, even made some cavalry, never released them yet, but made the cavalry, mm. uh, the infantry, the anti-tank equipment and weaponry being carried, deployed and fired. So we made all this stuff. Tom was really excited. He, he'd never heard of it before. I mean, all this reference material that the two Danes had shared with us, we produced this range of figures. And I thought, right, it's approaching April. So what I'm going to do is I'm not going to put it on the web store and sell it now. I'll put an update on the web store and say, right, here's the Danish range. Here's a few pictures. Yeah. It goes live. You can start buying it from 5.15 in the morning on the 9th of April, because that's when the Germans cross the border without asking yeah. nicely. And I can honestly say we were flooded with orders on that yeah. day and subsequently. And then there's a lovely follow-up. There's two follow-ups, actually. The lovely follow-up is that we got a letter about four months later, official Danish government document Ooh, wow. from the ambassador from Denmark. Yeah. And he said, uh, long story short, he said, thank you so much for making a range of miniatures depicting the armies of Denmark in 1940. As you probably realize now, I'm one of your first initial customers and uh, I'm basically singing our praises for doing it. Tom was just over the moon with yeah. such a compliment. And the other follow up was I was able to share all of that lovely Gucci information to the two fantastic gentlemen, Mark and Stuart of Great Escape Games, yeah. who recently delivered a beautiful range of Danes. And they said to me, we, we often have a beer sometimes at shows or after shows. Um, and uh, they said, Paul, you, you're a range of danger. You've got any research? I'm like, have I got some research? <laughs> I've got 
bucket loads. <laughs> and I gave it all to them. Yeah. And uh, yeah, let's just say we didn't pay for dinner or beer that night. They were really, really generous. And I thank them for that. And I'm really pleased that, that in 28 mil now, you can see models of the Danish army. Thanks to those two gentlemen and the efforts of a number of people in the miniatures business yeah. to create such things to give people that choice. So that's the first example of a customer saying, have you thought about? The other one, of course, comes from um, just what you're interested in, yeah. where the passion is. So the, the passion is what drives you as a designer to either get people to make things or make things yourself, pull them together. And bear in mind, Ken, we, we, we mold everything here. We cast everything here and we pack everything here. Um, so to, to kind of get to that point where you can get things into a mold and, and then made and then packaged, photographed and coded, you have to have a passion for that subject. If you don't have that passion, you, you won't see that subject through to being finished. Mm. It just won't happen. Or the range will be 10 or 12 figures, you know. Um, so I think having a passion for a subject. So Tom's passion right now is... Belgian 1914 mm -hmm. he's making lovely figures for it he into those sculpts he will pour the passion when I get them back I'll fettle with them and do a few bits and pieces which he, he knows that I do um, and basically we'll make those into a very very fine set of miniatures and it's that passion that will take you through the hours and hours and hours of finessing them molding them casting them packing them photographing them and then selling them out to the public so it's where your passion is so the drive comes often from pictures, subject matter. You know, I think I ticked your box about, you know, where do you sit history, war gamer and stuff. Well, history is initially, you know, the initial storyline from history. You know, who else has made, uh, who would want to make a range of Thai, Thai army? And they call, <laughs> the pronunciation might not be right on this, Yung Tao. Yeah. So Yung Tao are effectively the Thai armies, Boy Scouts of an older age with guns. Right. And if you speak to anyone passionate about Thai history, and we had a very good customer who lived yeah. out there and, and sent us all this stuff, uh, and the stories of them, you know, these were the people who met the Japanese army who invaded before Pearl Harbor started in 1941 on the beaches above Kotabaru, just on the Malayan Peninsula, and fought them to a standstill. Wow. They're Boy Scouts with guns. Mm. And there's a lovely little Thai film depicting the whole thing. But that's the gold dust that makes you want to, wow, what? let's recreate that in miniature. You know, let's maybe do some games where you've got, who would have thought Boy Scouts fighting the Japanese army fresh off the landing craft in 1941 and winning, you know, or at least holding their own ground for a good time. Um, that's gold dust in terms of, for me, wargaming and the passion that drives mm. you to make something in miniature. On a lot of the, uh, on a lot of the pictures on your website, um, you will have photograph um, next to the miniatures, um, which I, I really love. I really enjoyed looking through the website, doing research for today um, and seeing a picture of a command group. And then there'll be a photograph behind and, and you can see where the poses come from and the equipment's come from. Um, I mean, that is proper research at the end of the day, isn't it? That's well, that's, that's my drive. Yeah. That, uh, yeah, without, without wishing to blow me on trumpet it was seeing pictures like that that made, made me think mm. oh, i really want to make that in miniature yeah you know i really i really think that that would work and sometimes it's it's quite difficult to to make all that extra detail but it's that detail and, and I, I you're right i try and pose the original some of the original pictures that uh, get me excited about doing a range in the background because that's 
that's what drove that's mm. what drove that design was pictures like that and if not that exact one um yeah there's a glorious one of the danish army two fellas sitting with effectively flying helmets on <laughs> astride their nimbus yeah. with this magical uh, auto cannon on the side next to it sort of smiling i thought oh you've got me you you you, you got me there i've got to make that and uh and you do and so thank you for noticing that <laughs> um not everyone pretty notices yeah that detail yeah. and it's appreciated when people do it was it. a there was a command group i can't remember which one it was now but there was a command group and this guy had got um it must be some sort of signal board around his chest um with all different like colored slats on it and i was still looking yeah. at it trying to work out what it did it's dutch, dutch. it's a dutch, dutch army dutch army signalers ah, right. so uh, effectively that that thing rolls up and then when you unroll it, you plug it in the end of the barrel of your rifle and then pull the bottom taut. And then within it are a series of flaps. So as you pull the string, the flaps go up. And of course, the inside face of the flap is white. So it effectively makes a whole white yeah. screen, dark screen, white screen, dark oh. screen. And that's one method the Dutch signal. Yeah. So the guy didn't the guy didn't stand up with him with it round his chest then, because I thought that'd be like a really good target if you did yeah well you wouldn't do semaphore in the line of fire would you it's it's kind of similar thing really um again I, i'm very lucky the people i've met and and some got some very very good dutch friends um whose knowledge of dutch military history in 1940 is unpassed uh in fact they wrote books so in, um there's a the best book on the dutch military in english mm. text is called holland parat by my good friends jan gisbers antel gisbers and rob taz uh, and they're all their own original pictures. Fantastic. And in the picture, one of the first pictures of the column of Dutch infantry marching just before the war started, the person leading it is their uncle. Wow. And so, um, and I've been to their place a number of times. You know, Jan makes his own range of miniatures. Rob used to as well. Mm. Um, and they're just, just brilliant. And a subject like that, you know, the 10-day battle um, uh, for Holland. Mm. Uh, Bridge Too Far, 1940 if yeah. you think about yeah. it yeah 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 it's about the germans trying to get ahead capture bridges with paratroopers and mm. you know one of the first casualties in that campaign you couldn't make this stuff up when the germans came up the main um, waterway at rotterdam to land on the island where there's a big bridge first person that person who approached them was a dutch policeman and went boy you can't park that there and they shot him <laughs> so it's, it's kind of it's just war game in gold you yeah. know so uh but yeah, that's that's the kind of I'm back to what excites me really. Yeah, no, and, uh, so the, unusual ranges. Yeah, those pictures are lovely. I, I, I do. I, I did. I did enjoy that very much. Looking through the figures. Um, so um, if we move on now to uh, materials, um, because we're we're of an age when everything was was metal when we first started, and I would imagine that most, if not all, the stuff you did when you started uh, early war miniatures was was metal. Um, so you slowly, or I don't know whether you've totally now moved over to um, supercast. Um, so without giving any trade secrets away, we you know we don't want the recipe to Coca Cola or anything. Um, just explain to us, you know, the, the move over from metal and, and what supercast is and how it works. Uh, no problem. So yeah, let's start with supercast. So supercast is um, using a two-part polymer resin. Uh, plastic resin um, mm. that uh, when you pour it into a mold cavity and pull it it's got beautiful um, surface detail the detail capture on it is brilliant um, 
I've been doing this thing at shows now whereby I take a quite a delicate model and throw it on the floor in front of someone to show them they don't break, they just bounce. <laughs> because resin models had a bit of a bad reputation yeah. in the early yeah. days, you know, and that's because they weren't really resin. They were using effectively gel coat, which you use to coat canal as canoes and do roofs with. Yeah. And of course it's really brittle. So supercast, although it's resin, it's actually a two part plastic polymer. Um, it's, it's expensive, but I think you get what you pay for. Um, why move into resin? Um, entirely self-taught. I, I did have a bit of coaching from Jim, the master caster, I call him. Um, <laughs> there's a company called, um, uh, Millicast yeah. who are based in Glasgow, who on the show circuit, I'd often have a few beers with Jim. Yeah. Um, and for the first 10 minutes, I can only understand one word in five because it's broad Glaswegian, you know? And, uh, uh anyway, but beyond that, Jim, what Jim can't mold and cast, mm. nobody can. So in the early days, I was sharing ideas with him and, and getting his advice on things. But it's entirely now self-taught. And, and the goal for Supercast has always been to be able to create a model that once you pull it out the mold, um, you don't have to do much more to it. So, for example, many of the tanks that we do now have a Supercast body with the tracks. The Pinto machine gun is on there. The exhaust and other things are all on there. Even side shots and if needs be are all cast on. But the turret is metal and the gun barrel's metal. Right. And that's important because although resin is a wonderful product, it doesn't deal with small items very well in that they will either bend or they will break. Mm. Same is true in 3D printing, and we'll talk about that in a way in a, in a while. But so for resin, you know, small things work better in white metal. So if you can do a combination of the fragile parts being white metal, mm. the core bulk of the vehicle being resin. Um, and then as a modeler, your choice is, do I have the turret hatch open or closed? Do I use the figure that came with it or not? That's it. Yeah. You just glue the turret open or closed and then start painting it. And then when you play with it and pick it up and move it, you know that bits aren't going to break on it. So that's the drive to Supercast. When I bought the Skytex range, um, for those who remember, most uh, all their models were metal. Mm. Now, the patterns, I bought the business for the patterns because the patterns are just beautiful. A lot made by a gentleman called Steve Cox, who makes patterns now for me still occasionally, more for Steve at Battlezone and for people like the Perrys and Warlord. He's still mm. a, a quality old school pattern maker and, and a real gentleman as well. And his wife makes the best lemon drizzle oh, cake on the planet. There we go. That to one there side. We go. <laughs> uh, thank you, Mrs. Cox, by the way. Always appreciated. Yeah. See you at uh, Partizan if you're coming that way again. Lemon drizzle is always welcome. Um, so, uh, yeah, so um, that's, that's Supercast. That's the drive taking what were metal models and turning them into something that effectively looks better, making better use of the detail in the pattern uh, and making it a product that doesn't weigh a ton. You know, metal tanks so, weigh a ton. Yeah, so, so um, just so I can get my head around it, really, the, the old the metal casting process that I'm aware or familiar with would be rubber moulds, um, a big pile of them, you centrifugally cast, pouring molten metal into the middle, spin it round, and it goes out and fills the, the void and you take them apart. How does how does the uh, supercast process match to that? Okay, so you entirely encapsulate the model, all detail and everything, into uh, silicon rubber. You then cut what I think in the trades called gates. They, these are the openings into which you pour whichever material you're going to use to actually make the model enter and then also exit, yeah. you know, things that go in sometimes need to come out. 
So uh, in traditional mold making, it'd be a, called a J mold. So you pour at the top, there's the, the miniature, and then at the back end of it, you have a, a gate mm. coming out so that the metal, the fluid, whatever it is, can flow. Um, so, and then using the right materials. So again, it was the technical director of the person we buy the um, materials from who said, the sure value of silicon rubber is is a quite a key thing. Sure is the the hardness of the material, and they come in certain shores. So you can buy a, a shore 15, shore 20, 23, 27. But sometimes for some models you want it to be really flexible because it's quite difficult to get it out. So you need the shore to be low, and they don't come in that shore. And others you want it to be really quite stiff because it's quite a big model. Um, so I started blending catalysts. Uh, and it's his advice. Said, why don't you try blending catalysts? Because that way you'll make your own shore. So supercast is a combination of really smart way of gating and cutting the model. The way you mount it to create the gates for where the fluid is poured in, and getting the right shore of the rubber such that it is flexible. Sometimes the walls are really really thin. Uh, with the thickness of wall, you need the right shore. So supercast is an evolving art. I'm always practicing and experimenting. You know, it's, it's, it's never over. Andy will tell you, we're always trying yeah. new ideas uh, for casting. So you pour you pour this material into this specially made block of silicon rubber, effectively. You then uh, put it into a pressure chamber. So a pressure chamber is where you, in, you put it into a positive pressure of about four mm. bar. Now, what that does is any bubbles, any, any fluid that you create, even in metal, you can have... Um, a certain viscosity and uh, bubbles mm. form. So the reason to put something into a positive pressure is any bubbles that are still within are condensed under right, the pressure. Yeah. Once the once the the, the uh, resin is set, of course, those bubbles can't escape. They can't expand again. So um, that's that's effectively most of the trade secrets are supercast. They want to be doing it. Now. <laughs> I don't care. I actually, on on that note, um, uh, someone who's in the same business as us, um, uh, I won't say which which business mm. it is, um, whose models are mostly metal, mm. has spoken to me about it. I've actually said, you know, come and spend a couple of days over here. I'll show you everything I know. Because I, I you I bought your models when I was on that side of the counter. I don't want you to disappear. I want you to thrive and grow because you make great models. And the more of us doing it, the better. So I'm hoping at some point they may well take us up on that and uh, come over. And I'll, I'll happily, I said, bring a couple of masters. We'll mold them. We'll cast them. You'll go home with castings of them and how to do awesome. it. Awesome. Great idea. Uh, so um, is, is a lot of that around the uh, increasing cost of metal uh, moving to alternative um, materials? Uh, I think uh, metal has been a factor in more recent years. Certainly in the last two or three years, uh, the price of metal has fluctuated enormously. It, before that, it was reasonably stable. Well, certainly the, the grade of alloys, alloys that we uh, had bought. But certainly uh, in the last two years ago, it doubled, which is eye-watering. Uh, and even now it's sitting much, much higher than it has been before. But in truth, the drive towards resin happened really before we started to see some major fluctuations in uh, metal prices. So I'm going back six, seven years ago now. Um, the drive really was metal tanks have had their day in terms of 20 mil models, in terms yeah. of wargaming. Uh, they're just too heavy, too cumbersome. And um, 
as testified by all the old Skytrex molds they ended up binning, you know, that, that bulk of object when you cast it will just burn away even the best molds. So yeah. there's a number of reasons in truth behind the move. The main one was because I wanted to make the model built and ready. And it's not possible to cast that level of detail in one piece in metal in that scale. So kind of ticking in a few boxes, but the main one was moving to a better material that can cast one piece. And there's, there's obviously um, other methods of making stuff and um, many figure manufacturers have gone over to plastic recently. Mm. Um, and I understand that the, the molding process is quite expensive for that. Is that something yes. that you've considered? No, it, it's, it's not at all. Um, I kind of followed in a, in a way, certainly in the early days, quite closely with what Alan and Michael were doing with Renedra uh, in their quest to move into plastics. You know, the, the, their first plastics, the American Civil War sets, are just phenomenal. I mean, the, the, everything they make is bloody phenomenal. But, you know, their move into plastics was quite a big gamble because it was a considerable chunk of change to get that yeah. piece of work done. Um, and done in, there's a number of ways, the little I know about it from talking to the, the two twin brothers who ran Renedra, along with mm. uh, the lady who's the financial director as well, one of the wives, I can't remember her name now, Diane, I think it is. Uh, anyway, um, yeah, the the, uh, the the cost of doing it, um, because the method they use is pantographing, which is the old method of using or creating, um, cutting, cutting mold surfaces by pantographing so you uh, pantographing is where you pass a uh, a fine pointed object over the surface of another and that will then transfer that individual movement to a drill bit that's basically milling and cutting yeah um and it's the reason why the perrys make their three ups so three times the size and obviously the the pantograph takes that movement down by three in the cutting process so very skilled very 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 impressive piece of work um but it's not something i've ever considered uh, being part of um mainly because um no I, it's not something mm. I, I never wanted ewm to be a big big business i yeah. really didn't you know um i know this we were going to probably talk about this but it's an important point to register here my goal is not to kind of make loads and loads of money because I'm in the wrong business if I wanted to do that. It's about um, making models that excite, that passion and drive to make them. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, we'll, we'll earn a wage on the back of it. And thank you very much. That's it. Plastics is a whole different level of investment and uh, a level of uh, companies' involvement in such a thing. I suppose the other elephant in the room then is is 3D printing, and um, it, it's it's getting to a stage where you know some people are, are running companies on that basis, um, and and obviously as a as a business you're going to have a thoughts on it. So um, is it something you've looked at yourself for manufacturing, or, or how how do you feel about 3D printing? Uh, well, I've got direct experience of it because, um, back to my Dutch model makers, they've been using 3D printing to make their masters uh, for their model ranges for many years now. Um, and Rob um, is very much a keen advocate of that technology. So a lot of my thought process is driven from conversations with him who's hands-on doing stuff. Um, and I think you can break it down into two areas. Um, 
I think there's dangers with 3D printing, and I'll talk about what I think those are, and I think there's opportunities, and I'll hopefully cover those as well. Yeah. Um, so um, some of the dangers I think that we're seeing from 3D printing is there's a lot of people, as you say, making and selling models now in the hobby, mm. but they're charging hobby prices. It's not realistic. It's unrealistic. If you were a real business, then you'd need to charge what the true professionals in 3D printing, some of those you've hinted at, are doing. The problem that brings is that um, the people who are doing it as a hobby and charging hobby prices, they come and they will go. Mm. They'll go mostly because they'll get to the end of the printer's life and go, oh, I need a new one. I can't afford one. Oh, bloody hell. <laughs> That's if I was charging the right money in the first place. I'd have saved up enough to buy more equipment or more materials. So I think that's a danger, um, and it certainly undermines the work of people who are doing it professionally in proper workshops with, and charging proper prices. Mm. Certainly the quality is highly variable, and I'm pointing that comment more directly at the, the hobby makers, not those who are doing professional work. You know, There's some absolutely outstanding 3D prints and models and sculpts being uh, designed and made at the moment, um, but the hobby... 3D printers are a danger to you know that successfully getting off the ground and, and being more prevalent. Um, certain models uh, and scales really suit that technology better than others. And here's my example: um, 28 mm uh, vehicles and figures uh, are better suited because the physical size of the miniature means that the parts themselves are less fragile. Mm. If you take a rifle in 20 mil in scale and print it in a resin, it's highly vulnerable. Mm. Many of the um, vehicle gun barrels I've seen on 20 mil models printed are too small. They're, 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 sorry, not too small. They're too flimsy to use for wargaming. They're the right scale, but because they're the right scale, they're too flimsy. And, and again, that came out of a conversation with, again, my Dutch friends I met at the first show I did at Cavalier, actually. I met them. And uh, they asked me, well, why, why do you want to make a Wargames version? Because some of my patterns come from them. I, I pay them to use and make a Wargaming version of their models. Yeah. And the penny clicked one day up in Yan's man cave over many bottles of beer and fine cheeses. I said, I understand now. I said, because you're picking them up and moving them all the time, they, the parts which are too flimsy will break. Whereas my models, I make them, I paint them, and I put them on display, and that's where they stay occasionally coming out to go to a show if he's showing them as a painted model at a competition or something or not competition just a display so the scale thing i think is relevant for 3d printing and gets worse as you get smaller imagine imagine a rifle to scale in 15 mil and how flimsy that will be when you're picking up ranks of men you know it just it's the it's the flimsy nature of the resin which is one reason even in 20 mil i make them in white metal because i think it's more sturdy mm. It's, it's, it's better because we're picking them up and moving them. Um, th those who are doing 3D printing, I've actually spoke to, again, it's, it's not a hobby. It's a full-time bloody job. And ha hats off to those uh, people out there who are making a living out of producing 3D printed figures and models because they're doing it professionally. But it is a full-time job. Mm. And hopefully they are the ones charging business prices, not hobby prices. So, hang on, hats off to them. The techniques that are the, the printers now, um, 
there's quite a lot it takes a long time to print something so there's not really the mm. economies of scale there you would have to buy lots of printers to produce lots of figures in a relatively short space of time yeah yeah i i think so no and and there's there's some other factors um so Again, I'm only taking this, I'm kind of praising a conversation I've had with Rob and Hans who do the 3D printing for the Dutch. In the world of 3D printing out there, and I'm sure the professionals who do this are aware, we have in effect, um, with people sharing files, taking files and then making a little change and calling it their own, you have in effect a wholesale piracy of people's mm. 3D print designs being undertaken. And that's not good for any business or any hobby. You know, um, again, I've not seen it direct. I'm really talking on Rob, who's every day is on the Internet looking for files, mm. looking for you know, the latest chatter in the world of 3D printing. And it's an issue. Mm. And uh, I'd really like to speak to some other people doing 3D printing professionally and get their perspective on that. But certainly the ability to share that file and change it, tweak it a bit, call it your own, that's piracy. Yeah, you know, that's, that's not your own work yeah. and you shouldn't profit from your own stuff that's not your own work. No, definitely. Um, it's really easy to make um, a really desired model, for example. I actually spoke to a lovely gentleman who was selling some 3D prints at the Bournemouth show and he had a couple of really nice tanks and then lots of other things. And I said, they're really, really nice. But where's the rest of the range? He said, what do you mean? I only sell the, the Panther. The Panther's the most popular one. Why would I do <laughs> the Panzer one? No one wants that. Yeah. The, there in itself is an issue because you want people to do a whole range. We don't want just people making the, the thing that's going to sell the most. I think uh, there's two other things, if you're if you, okay with mm, yeah, talk about it. Again, I'd, Rob gave me a real understanding of how the technology works. You know, the, the, the UV-cured resins, which produce some absolutely superb models, um, they're cured by UV light. And um, I was talking to uh, Paul Edelstone of uh, Empress, about this a couple of weeks ago, whereby he said, you know, I think we're facing a problem here. And I tend to agree with him that when we all bought plastic figures 30, 40 years ago, we painted them all lovely, thought, oh, they last forever. But actually, they're starting to crumble yeah. and brittle. UV light is what cures these 3D prints. Now, if you're going to, you're going to, you're not going to play with your moles at night all the time, are you? You're going to put them in UV <laughs> at some yeah. point. Are we storing up the problem that we never envisaged when we bought all our plastic ranges 30, 40 years ago? Are we going to see a similar thing? We certainly saw it with early resins. Some of the early resins are just, it's called resin cancer. You actually just, they start crumbling and fall into pieces. They form a white powder and collapse. And um, the last point, um, and it was Hans who does all the 3D drawings for uh, Gizbo's models, actually said, you know, um, I, I came from a world where 3D printing was how we designed and created prototypes for engineering. He was a ship's architect. So 3D printing was initially designed for one or two off productions of a prototype, mm. which you would then take. And then if you created a lost wax version of it, you'd then make a bronze fitting or another mold. You'd use that impression to cast it in a material that you could then make a better mold out of, not be a non-fresh metal, whatever. 3D printing, as you kind of hinted at, was never really envisioned for mass production, for the mass production of things. Now, it, it's starting to do it. We're starting to see it. But as you said, do you really want to be in a workshop where you've got 10 UV printers where you have to wear a, say a gas mask to actually operate in that? Or you certainly the protection measures are more required. I, I saw on a Wargames blog um, recently that someone was warning. It was a 3D printing professional, by the way, and good on him, saying, 
I've heard that people are actually, to cure the mold line, or the, the ridge lines in FDM prints, people are airbrushing UV resin over them to smooth out the detail. So do you really want to be mm. doing that? You're breathing, you're aerosoling something that's cured in 3D. Can you imagine if it gets on your contact lens and you go out in the sun? So, that, you know, there's, there's some, some dangers in there that I think hobbyists who are doing this and charging silly prices are not helping the business, those in 3D printing professionally and others in the hobby as well. Now, saying that, there's many opportunities, you know, um, some of the prototypes that uh, I've seen being made and, and Rob has made for me. He's drawn the wheel on our Dutch uh, six inch howitzer. Rob designed and made that and printed it in 3D and then I took it and then cast it in metal. Uh, absolutely brilliant. I could never, you could, if you could have made a wheel like that as a traditional pattern, but it would be a pain in the backside <laughs> to do. So as a prototype, he made it. We now reproduce it in metal. Um, so, you know, that's what it was initially the concept was for, for the aerospace and engineering industries who were first adopters of it in the 90s. Um, uh, it certainly uh, can make um, our hobby, those who have that desire to want to create a miniature more accessible than, say, traditional routes like, you know, casting in metal, casting in resin, setting up a big workshop to do it. You know, it means that you can start by producing some really good 3D prints and actually getting online and becoming a presence in, in this hobby, in this business. Fan-bloody-tastic. Um, you know, if you've got that drive, you've got that in your nature mm. to create in miniature, fantastic. This is an outlet for that. So um, welcome it entirely. And just to say, in our hobby right now, in this business, there's never been a better time. If you think about it, Ken, there is more choice. There are more people coming into this business. It's a golden time for hobbyists. When I go back to the kind of 70s and I wanted them all beer arranged, there wasn't one, so I had to kind of scratch <laughs> and make some pretty crude figures back then. Now you're spoiled yeah. for choice in multiple scales. Um, that's a good thing. You know, it's a sign of a buoyant and thriving hobby and businesses for people. So I just think there are opportunities, but there are dangers with 3D printing. Um, and, and that's a person who uses some of the design work myself for some of the models we make. I hope that answers your question. Yes, it does. It's um, it's a very interesting topic, and there is a because we are there is a large percentage of the historical hobby in our later middle age, should we say? Um, who I mean, my, I myself, I I don't mind paying money for um for for models. So there's less danger of me looking for that cheap source of, of material of, of, of figures or, or models um so I, I think we've got a little bit of a, a buffer if you like with with lots of people like myself who will prefer to buy rather than you know i don't want a 3d printer i don't want another hobby um i'm quite happy with the hobby i've got and if i you know if i need a 20 mil tank i'll send you 10 quid 20 quid whatever i need to send you and you'll send me one and i don't have to worry about it you know mm. the, the largest level of stress i will have will be opening the package um so lots of people there's lots of people like myself who just want the figures at the end of the day so mm. um i think in future generations when you know my lad is in his early 20s he's well into this sort of technology there's more chance of him doing it but huh. he's more into science fiction gaming, so huh. it will be more along that hobby. But yeah, no, it's very interesting chat. Very interesting chat at all, indeed, about that. Um, so that just that brings me on to talk about um, the actual selling of the figures, if you like. And um, 
you uh, regularly attend a number of shows throughout the UK during the year. Um, so I just kind of wanted to, to have a chat with you really about which shows you choose and to do and why um, and how the show forms part of your business. Okay. Uh, well, you're right. We do attend uh, a, a number of shows. Um, my favourite show ever was Crisis in Antwerp. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, have you ever been there at all? Have you ever attended that one? I haven't. No, I haven't. Oh, man. You've missed out on a real treat there. Yeah. Um, it, it's a favourite for many reasons. Many of those reasons are there are many different Belgian beers that you can sample <laughs> and experience. Yeah. Um, but but there are others too. You know, the, the club make it so, you're so welcoming, so mm. friendly. Can't do enough for you. Uh, it's easy to get in. It's easy to get out access-wise. Um customers come there we see you know, once a year we used to see once a year from all over europe mm. um it was just a delight uh, the day went so fast for me there i loved every visit and every time and i've still got friends the organizing members of that that club who we see uh we talk to quite regularly uh, I, I would really wish that would start again what i really dislike about shows um and i'm getting i i'm getting older i'm getting grumpier i suppose maybe might be a ginger <laughs> thing i don't know who who knows? Um, I really dislike shows where the trade space is over cramped, yeah. where all the traders are bunched up. There's not enough space between trade stands. So you get crowd bunching, particularly people with rucksacks make that crowd bunching even worse. Um, and the people who come to visit the show, our customers as well, can't move around easily. Mm. Um, and, and I'm getting more picky about them things and I suspect they are too. You, know, yeah. you go to a good few shows. Yeah, you you must know why certain shows make you want to go back, and others you think, oh, actually, I'm not sure about. I want to go there. Um, you know, for, for example, where you can get a decent cup of tea or coffee, yeah. those who want, uh, without having a mortgage. Yeah, you know that's 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 a little factor. It's a small one, but it's certainly a factor. Um, so some of my favourite shows, for some of the reasons I've talked about, in terms of you know friendly easy access the the organizers communicate really really well with you they actually welcome you when you say hello paul i haven't seen how's it been the last you know all the the venue also the city so for example york york is one of my favorite shows i love york and i'm not saying that because i'm on the yorkshire podcast <laughs> i really like york yeah um two of my favorite places in york are the um <laughs> the house of the trembling madness um for those who've been there will know it does one of the finest selections of uh, Belgian beers uh, uh, in York, and uh, oh god, I forgot the bloody name of it now. The Minster Minster Inn, which is on the city walls, just fantastic. And so we always try and get a hotel near staying there, and it's the reason why we always take an extra day off to spend a day in York. Mm. You know, just to spend a lovely day walking around York. So the venue, the city, is is an attraction. Um, Beachhead at Bournemouth, you know, that's a relatively new show. It's the guys from Pool uh, Entoyment who are the main brains behind organizing that peter entoyment you know just a wonderful guy and so so lovely to see his success over recent years with what he's done with that business um he organizes a great show it's a whole weekend um and you know we do a few favors for sailors we get across the ocean we we go and do the show and we then we go back again um hammerhead it's one of the trade organized shows interestingly you know it's actually callista and paul and sally bless them uh who do the bulk of sally does the bulk of the uh the organizing to make that show happen and it's a splendid show 
um, partisan. You know, mm. the, the gentleman who organised that, uh, Trix and Rich and the others. Just, it, and that that show has an attraction because the quality of the games that are there. But it's also in a well-spaced, easy to move around, well-lit environment that's easy to get in and out as a trader. And the price of trading there is 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 good value for money. You know, you can't say that about all the trade mm. shows on the circuit. Yeah. So they're just some of the reasons why those particular shows attract me. As I say, maybe I'm getting grumpy as I'm getting older. <laughs> I don't know. But um, I'd like to think that uh, our customers want to see similar things when they come and visit. Yeah. And because um, it, it's not, it's going to be straightforward for you, is it? Because you're going to have to, you know, everyone does, but you're going to have to pack up and travel off the island. And then, you know, Bournemouth's not a massive journey, but um, York, for example, is a is a long journey up the motorway. Um, so mm. I would imagine, and and overnight stay costs, etc. Your table, mm. your fuel, all that's got to be made back in takings, hasn't it? Um, yeah, it has, and it's a factor. And you know, it's one I pondered over when moving to the island, um, because you know you've got to add a the extra distance, as you say. You know, York is about five and a half hours in um, in in Ravan. Um but you know, Andy to talk to, bless him. Uh, we put a podcast on when we're, <laughs> we're doing that journey. We can make that go. Um, overnight accommodation in some places, uh, like in Nottingham, <clears throat> with uh, some well-known people um, staying there, is an opportunity to visit the trip and maybe play a game and certainly catch up with old mates. So, kind of making it work really, as well as yes, it is. It is a journey, but York absolutely worth it. It's it's one of my favourite uh, UK shows. Uh, for the reasons we spoke yeah. about, um, I mean, it's the club there. They're waiting for you to turn up and help you unload, and they'll even help you pack at the end of it. That's such a lovely thing, <laughs> yeah. you know. I can't. Any anyone organising shows out there, please, if you get your members to help traders offload and load again, it is so so well received mm. from the trader side. Yeah, it really, really is. It's something that we've we've tried to do at Leeds at Fiasco for many many years. Uh, unfortunately, now most of us are in our mid to late 50s and early 60s so carrying stuff isn't isn't as easy as it was when we were running fiasco in the 1980s but we do try we do try and do that at Leeds uh, I have to say um so obviously we've been through the period of covid and uh, there was no shows and I, I imagine you were you were running things on the internet so um how was that period and how has that affected your business model uh, going forward, um, are you doing more business online? Um, I think the level of business online is about the same, maybe a little bit down at the moment because you know people is harder. That what's cash is in people's pockets is you know there's a lot of calls on that uh, in the last six months. Um, it was it was a bizarre time, M made worse by uh, me personally. In fact, we'd only just moved here, um, and then you know within moving here and and then obviously couldn't really get to meet neighbors yeah. uh, i caught the caught the bloody thing in uh summer two summers ago um and that was the the year i was building this place which is why i was behind six months because i had to wait till i'd recovered and then build it basically um so i was still putting the roof on in october uh year before last um because i was that far behind so it, it certainly impacted things in that sense um andy caught it bless him you know so Customers, though, you know, the vast majority of our customers, and it is the vast majority, 99% are fantastic. You just say to them, listen, we're a bit behind. 
it's going to take us four weeks rather than two. Hope that's okay. And and during that period, and certainly after, it's been a case of that's all right. We'll get here when it gets here. I've got other stuff to paint, so it's not it's not the end of the world. But it certainly had an impact. I think the biggest impact has been on the the, the um, price of raw materials. That's a much bigger in-your-face reality. So power, you know, just to run run the the melting pot to run the compressors to run the casting machine uh costs a lot more now you know it costs andy more to get here and back so you know what wages he gets is under more pressure so it creates all kinds of pressures but you know yes lockdown caused a number of issues and yes we did we did pick up some extra business we couldn't cope with it and i was very honest with people and saying i'm really sorry we're turnaround times um an off a thing i will quote even now is we're not bloody amazon <laughs> you know you, you order it from us you ain't gonna get it the next day unless we've got it in stock and and you're the only order in line you know typically we try and get stuff turned around in seven days we try that can uh busy times like when we had a batch of shows in february and march that stretched to three weeks uh, and for some orders it was four weeks but most people you let them know they're like don't worry about it understand we'll we'll get it when we get it so i think we're very lucky in this in this hobby in this business and uh you know you could take a check from someone mm. and it yeah. would be okay there's not many businesses now who would do that no. where you'd have that kind of customer mm. no yeah. it really isn't so so um a number of companies have, have kind of stepped back from the show circuit following covid and and oh. not returned oh. some pretty big names as well um is it still mm. important for you to meet people in person at shows and not sell but but have a relationship with those customers through that that medium of actually physically meeting them oh yeah ken i, I can't tell you i mean i'm most shows i'm just smiling from ear to ear from the moment the door opens to the moment and after yeah. the door closes because it's sometimes it's the one time in the year i get to meet that person mm. you know um people do send me pictures of what they've painted and what they've done with the things which i encourage enormously and love it and we'll have conversations with that but you know the chance for people to, to come and see us and physically see the things up for, you can you can tell a lot from the internet and pictures mm. There's nothing better than actually seeing it. And, exactly. and on our display stand, which you may have seen, you, you can, if you stand on one side of it, you can still see through to the other side. Um, and I put that near where the little desk where we kind of take the money and where my ginger nuts are kept. Um, and for me, it's lovely because I, I'm, I've got one ear open and I'm hearing people bringing their friends up to the display and going, yeah, look, that's what they look like. There's those German tanks yeah. or that's those Polish infantry. So, you know, they're bringing their friends and telling them and getting excited about something that we've designed and we've made and we've brought to that show. That's a buzz that I never got working in IT, I can tell you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, you wouldn't, you wouldn't get in that job, would you? Well, it's fantastic no, to hear. And I, no. I love, I'm, it's lovely to hear that because I still very much enjoy the social aspect of, of, of the shows and meeting people who mm. have been guests and uh, future guests etc and people who listen to the podcast as well it, it's very much a social thing but obviously as a business you do need to make sure that you uh, are able to finance those trips as well and, it, and it's good to see that um, so many of the war games traders are still going to shows it's a shame that a number of them have, have dropped off I, I hope they come back and and talk to people in, in, in it was like uh, it was a phase in the um 
I think it was the mid to late 80s where they started, no, early 90s probably, where they started uh, war games by email. Uh, and and a friend of mine at the club said, why don't they just bloody talk to each other? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I much prefer the social side of, of things, as, as you can well imagine. Uh, oh, totally. And I think shows have got to evolve a bit more. You know, you're seeing some new things at some shows. For example, the table sales, where you can hire a table for a couple of hours and sell all your your old crap off. But that's courses. That's someone else's yeah. treasure. Um, and for me as a trader, I'm like, I can't wait. Uh, Andy, look after Stan. I need to go and look at the latest batch of table sales I've just put out. You know, because uh, I love anyone loves rummaging through other people's old stuff. You know, because some of the treasures you want are in there. So seeing some shows doing those as opposed to your traditional bring and buy table um i think that's a big plus i I first saw that in antwerp with the crisis show um more than 10 years ago and it's really nice to see them doing it at other shows in the uk um that's that's a really nice thing so um and talks you know getting interesting people in to do a talk so one thing that stands out for me about hammerhead is the public are there for longer yeah now and i i don't know all the reasons for that but I'd hazard a guess at one factor, and mm. one factor is that more of the games, I think nearly all the games there are participation yes. games, yeah. and they in themselves create a little crowd, not just those playing, but those interested and following, either your mate playing or people you know playing. So keeping people at shows longer, you know, it's quite disheartening for a trader if you go to a show and then see our post one, it's emptied out. You know, some of the shows I went to in the past, the um, the Derby, that Derby show we talked about oh, earlier. Yeah, you know, yeah. Come bloody one o'clock, it was empty, you know. Um, just all the aisles were full of traders because you couldn't walk between them. Um, but there wasn't that many playing public in there, yeah. so that's very disheartening. Uh, and shows need to have more things like that. I know Bournemouth, the employment boys, are, they have historians in doing chats and talks about certain subjects, so you can dip out of your competition or your your because uh, a lot of competition games go there games going on there or looking around all the, the trade stands and actually go and spend an hour listening to someone talk about a subject that hopefully has interest to you mm. um, so that's another good thing but we need more i think people need to think more about what can keep and bring people to their shows mm. Yeah, that's no, good. Some good ideas in there. Some good ideas. Um, well, I've been keeping you uh, chatting for quite some time now, and with our technical issues, we've uh, we've gone on mm. even longer. So um, I'll just finish off by asking you, um, what are the, what's the future for e, EWM? What's what's coming up? Um, what's Paul Thompson going to be doing in a few years' time with the with the company? Oh bloody hell! I think that far ahead, Ken. Um, so uh, this, all right, this what, are you year, be, what are you going to be doing tomorrow? Okay, well, <laughs> this this uh, yeah, this year uh, today's gone there already. So I'm I'm finishing off these range of uh, British Army for uh, Eastern North Africa, Middle East, and uh, the Far East. I think the Far East is a, a an a pretty unexplored area to to follow up on. Uh, Tom's working on some early First War. Uh, models which are great and really looking forward to it. I've seen a couple of the, the models that have come back from that already so that's really exciting uh, early war Americans you know mm. I, I did a range of Philippine yeah. scouts you know the battles in the Philippines Wake Island and all the other little places where early war Americans uh, in their very almost first war uniforms in some way but in summer dress um, fought some great battles against the Japanese so that in line with um, the Far East handbook you know the, the, the uh, Richard and co are mm. 
whatever they go to, I find myself more and more drawn to playing their games. Yes, and Andy's, nice, yeah. yeah, oh, Andy's taken up the the um, uh, the chain of command, and he's forced him trying to hold him back. Basically, he's uh, wants to go painting <laughs> lots of forces so we can have more and more campaigny style games. Um, so, uh, what a cowboy! I'm looking forward. I've got the rule book. Thank you, Richard, and uh, I'm looking forward to playing that. And Andy's keen as mustard. We're already coming up with our, our designs there. Um, and really get more games on the table here. Now, now the the studio is is usable, finished, uh, a good working space. Actually, use it more for gaming. Yeah. Uh, and I really would like at some point to transition all the models I've collected over the years in the periods I play, mainly World War Two, to models of my own manufacture. Oh, now, that's right. a big process. Yeah. Yeah, because uh, I've got, you know, when, when figures were Skytrex before, so I could say, well, they're mine anyway, but mm. they weren't mine when I bought them. Um, and other figure ranges that I want to actually have all the figures, my own designs. Um, that's a big goal, and I need to do more painting. I don't do enough painting at the moment, so that's something I want to do. And some of the podcasts here, the, the Paint and Chat podcast, Alex at Storm yeah, Steel, Alex is one, uh, yeah. Richard's one, they're really good. Yeah. I really, I try and listen in on those, and I know what the reluctance is to pick up the paintbrush and do some, but I need to do more. Yeah. And I want to do more. So, yeah. Yeah. That's the goal. Well, fingers crossed we'll get there pretty soon. Um, yeah. so it's been lovely talking to you today, Paul. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Ken. Um, I always um, leave uh, the opportunity for my guests to ask me a question at the end of the uh, the podcast. Have I escaped or have you got one? Well, uh, the only question is really, uh, have you ever been to the South Island, to the English tropics? Uh, I have a very, very long time ago. Um, one of my uh, relatives, auntie and uncle on my mum's side live there. Um, I think they're still there now. Um, they'll be well into their 80s. Um, and they, they lived there. And I went uh, on a holiday. Oh, I must have been probably eight, nine years old. Um, so I right. haven't been for a very long time. Okay, well, if you're ever down on the Staple Line, come and see us. We'll make you a cup of Yorkshire tea yep. here in the English tropics. That... And you can look at my neighbour's bananas. Oh, that's, that's, that's an invitation if I've ever had one. <laughs> Thanks very much, Paul. If you'd like to say good night, Thanks, good night to the audience. Good night, audience, and keep up the great work, mate. Really enjoy it. Lovely. Thank you very much. Good night, everyone. So there we go. What a lovely chat with Paul. What a great guy. So many wonderful stories and a wonderful company that produces some fantastic stuff in 20mm, a range that I'm not uh, necessarily uh, known for, but I do very much appreciate Paul's uh, figures and vehicles. They are of an exceptionally high quality and I'm just looking for an excuse to uh, start a project uh, with his figures and uh, hopefully I'll get a chance to do that in the very near future. So thank you once again, Paul, uh, for your time. And, uh, I hope everyone who is with us is has enjoyed that chat uh, with Paul. Very, very informative and uh, hopefully very entertaining too. You know, I used to worry about the length of these videos, but talking to people and, you know, you out there, uh, if you're painting figures, you're probably thinking, oh, I'm going to have to get up in a minute and move stuff around. Um, you know, three hours is not a massively long painting session or a gaming session, or if you're driving to work or 
commuting, however you listen to this podcast, you can always stop, and that's why I have breaks in the in the show for people to do that. So, uh, thank you very much for listening. Uh, much appreciated. Uh, just leads me on to announcement for the next guest for podcast forty four, and uh, I'm going to be speaking with Pete Berry from Bacchus Miniatures, uh, who of course was six mil company. Oh my God, shock horror! The world is going to explode. Uh, I don't think it is because Pete's a really nice guy and uh, I've had a couple of really good chats with him over the years um, at shows etc so uh, we're going to chat with Pete about Bacchus and all sorts of stuff if you notice his name is on your copy of Forlorn Hope if you've got that uh, set of English Civil War rules Uh, so there's lots of stuff for us to chat about and uh, I'm looking forward to it so I'll see you in probably three weeks time uh, with uh, Pete so until then look after yourselves Sidney!